You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You're now tuned into the Pod Awful channel. Pod Awful. Bi-quarterly women's social club. Dazed and convicted. Blue party radio. Show King. The devil's advocate. The projection booth. Awful flips. Pod Awful. Net. Concerning the walls of the provincial city of Loudun, its walls were among the last left standing in the country whose feudal lords were being systematically divested of their powers and independence. I ask you once again, where is His Majesty's proclamation authorizing this demolition? In a common priest, you act uncommonly like a governor, Father. Where is your authority? Here! Should one more stone be torn from our city walls, you will be dead before it touches the ground. And so the king and his ministers discovered resistance in Loudun, in the quite remarkable Urbain Grandier, a man to be described variously as martyr and lover, politician and priest, and finally, sorcerer and agent of the devil. Non lo sa justificabitur homo. My cousin tells me his daughter is pregnant. Well, you have your whores. Why do you have to meddle with her? They therefore sought the means most easily to emasculate this resistance and found a curious psychological phenomenon in progress. A community of religious women in this very town were reported in the grip of a most inflammatory mass hysteria. And what form does this incubus take? Secluded women, they give themselves to God, but something remains which cries out to be given to man. Now this is sin. My beloved sister in Jesus seems to have set her mind on me. There's no reason. But of course I can prove nothing. This mother superior may be little more than a hysterical nun. But if it is a genuine case of possession by devils, and if Grandier himself was proved to be involved, then yes, I think it bears investigation, gentlemen. 
This phenomenon has intrigued some of the most renowned scholars and literary men. Contemporary interest resulted in a rich documentation of undoubtable authenticity. The great French historian Jules Michelet, the distinguished Jean-Joseph Surin, as well as such specialists in psychological aberrations as Dr. Gabriel Leguet, wrote volumes on the subject of the possession by devils at Loudun. You're going to be tortured. Have you thought of the pain to come? You have one consolation. Hell will hold no surprises for you. And now, one of the great artists of the day, filmmaker Ken Russell, who has won international acclaim for the perception and visual sensuality of his women in love, has brought his camera to the subject and reveals a spectacle of unrivaled brilliance and thunderous drama. Projection booth. I'm your host, Rob St. Mary, and joining me is my co-host and Supreme Inquisitor, Mr. Mike White. You know, every single one of us has a devil inside. Yeah, that's what I heard. And joining us, special guest co-host and Doctor of Demonology filmmaker Vincenzo Natale. <laughs> that's a nice introduction. Thank you. No problem. This week, we're looking at Ken Russell's The Devils. The 1971 historical drama stars Oliver Reed as Urban Grandier, a priest who rubs the powers that be in France the wrong way and refuses to go along with King Louis XIII and his right-hand man of God, Cardinal Richelieu. Soon, Grandier finds himself accused of bewitching a convent of nearby nuns, led by the mother superior, Sister Jeanne, played by Vanessa Redgrave. The film is based on Aldous Huxley's 1952 book, The Devils of Loudon. The Devils is a film that faced the censorship shredder almost upon its initial release due to violent sexual and religious imagery and political commentary. Rated X when it was originally put out, the film was banned in several countries and has never really officially been released in its original form in the United States and has been held back on video for years. The Devils is a film that has much to say today as when it was released over 40 years ago, as much as the story of Irvin Grenier almost 400 years ago. Let's go ahead and talk about our initial impressions of the film, and Vincenzo, as always, as our guest, what were your thoughts for the first time you saw The Devils, and what do you think? This was the first time I had seen The Devils. I watched it specifically for this podcast and uh, had for many years wanted to see it. I had known about it since I was a kid, I guess, and you know, it's just one of those films that's very hard to come by. And I know there's a release on DVD that came out fairly recently that is the restored cut, which is the one I saw. So I, I guess I saw it in its best possible form, although I would say far from perfect form, uh, for the first time about two weeks ago. And it is a startling work of cinema. All controversy aside, it's actually my impression of it was it's just a great movie. It's a very powerful, moving story. And for all of the excess that one would want and expect from a Ken Russell film is actually quite emotional and in, in many respects, I think, has a very centered and somewhat traditional moral perspective. So it was shocking to me in so much as how traditional in some ways I felt that it was from a thematic point of view. It was equally shocking to me in so much as 
I think it's an extraordinarily impressive and forward-thinking film in terms of its design and in terms of its visual execution and unquestionably has stood the test of time. I mean, to put it very simply, I was just bowled over by it. I think uh, it's, it's one of the better movies I've, I've seen in recent years. And for you, Mike. I also only saw this film recently. It was one of those where I didn't want to see the wrong version. It was a film that I had held in my hands many a time uh, at the video store. But knowing Ken Russell and how beautiful his films are, did not want to ever watch this on VHS, um, just because I wanted to see it widescreen, if not on the big screen. And then knowing that it had been cut up, I kind of wanted to do the research and find out what was the most complete form. And as Vincenzo alluded to, there is a uh, Region 2 disc that came out recently that is pretty darn close, if not the closest we're ever going to get. And uh, finally sat down and watched that. And you know, it was one of those, like, I had read so many different things about this scene and that scene, and it was nice to finally see them all kind of put together. I think I'd seen more of the outtakes and the deleted stuff than I had ever seen parts of the the movie as a whole. So sitting down and seeing everything in context was very refreshing. And yeah, terrific, terrific film. It was one of those movies where I really didn't think it was going to be as straight ahead as it was. And I was very glad when it followed kind of more of a traditional plot and traditional through line and was very, very happy with it. As for me, I borrowed a bootleg DVD of this from a friend of mine a couple of years ago. And one of the things that I remember that was on the front cover of it was now with the rape of Christ scene right on the front. And I thought that was kind of funny to advertise such a thing on the front. But when we get into the film, you'll understand what that means. It really struck me as this uh, great piece of of a political statement, uh, questioning of, of, of religion and how religion and politics was working at the time and things like that. And just in terms of design and everything, I was just blown away. And I think this is probably Oliver Reed's best performance of anything I've ever seen him in. So I saw the film, I borrowed the DVD, and then I went out and I found a copy of the book. And I actually read the book. That's right. Anyone who listens to the show knows that Mike is usually the reader of the books. I am not because I'm a notoriously slow reader, but I did read the book as well. And I have to say this is a pretty faithful adaptation um, to Aldous Huxley's book, and uh, we'll get more into that as we go along. Why don't we start with the plot? It's a pretty, as you said, it's a pretty straightforward story, and it's uh, Irvin Grenier is the priest in the town of Luzon, France. And at the time, there is this question of what's going on with um, consolidation of power in France under King Louis XIII. And the very opening of the film, this I have to say is very Ken Russell when it comes to the very opening of the film. We get this sort of stage play, and we're not necessarily sure what's going on with the stage play. And we learn that actually the lead actor in the stage play, who's in drag, is the king. In the research, we learned that he was actually an actor, and he used to put himself in these uh, performances. And it's the whole, what, Birth of Venus scene that we're kind of seeing redone as this little musical that's going on. And it's got this uh, whole 
audience of uh, people that are in various states of, of drag and, and disrobement, and amidst all of them is Cardinal Richelieu, and it just seemed very odd to have him amongst there. Kind of reminded me of one of the scenes in Amadeus where you know the king yawns during the performance, and everyone is so shocked, and you know it's like, oh my god, this play, this uh, will never last past so many performances because the king wasn't that impressed with it. And when Richelieu is out there and, and yawns, at first I'm thinking that he's really the one that's in power because I don't know who the guy on stage is. And really, that kind of is appropriate because there is this kind of blurring of who really is in charge here. Is it Richelieu or is it King Louis Thirteenth? And that's kind of the struggle that goes on. Um, as the film goes around is is who really pulls the strings on everything that's happening in France at this time. And I guess kind of caught in the middle between those two guys is the character that um, Oliver Reed is playing, Urbain Grandier, and he is a priest out in London. London? I kept thinking that this was actually called The Devils of London, and people were just being kind of goofy about it <laughs> when I kept reading the title. And he's out there and doing his own thing. He seems to be very progressive in his thinking and definitely is very lusty for a priest. Um, you know, we, we think of priests as these kind of uh, holier-than-thou, pun intended, I guess, really, truly holier-than-thou kind of creatures who are above earthly desires. And he is all about earthly desires. He seems to have no problem betting women, and that kind of starts to lead to some trouble for him. It is that in terms of what you think about in terms of the times. At this time in Europe, there is nothing that's secular. Everything is church and state. And when we talk about art, when we talk about who is important within the society, basically the local priest in town was, I don't want to say he's the local rock star, but he was the guy that people paid attention to. He was the guy that got respect. He was the guy who was the master driver of town, maybe probably even more so than whoever was the mayor or in charge of that little section or the feudal lord in a lot of ways. So, um, Irvin Grenier really uses that to his advantage in a lot of ways and is kind of his downfall. And the other thing that puts him at odds with Richelieu is that he's a Jesuit. With a progressive Jesuit upbringing, it's not surprising your priest is bold and willful. If he were allowed to become governor of Loudon, he would defend Catholic and Protestant alike. And have command of the most heavily fortified town in all of Poitou, your eminence. As long as Loudon stands, we will never gain control of the southwest. Its fortifications must be demolished. The masonry we could use to build your new town of Richelieu. Except the rebel priest will not allow one stone to be touched. And neither will the king. That is a whim. But, in the fullness of time... He will see that it is God's will. And what of the militant Father Grandier, your eminence? He is far from whimsical. If only for the sake of his immortal soul, the priest must be humbled and his pride crushed. But with that Jesuit background, it will not be easy. You know what they say. Give us the first seven years of a man's life and you can have the rest. You'll never break him. I too have a maxim, eminence. Give me three lines of a man's handwriting and I will hang him. If you study Jesuits within Catholic faith whether it be then or even today, they're very much into questioning. They're, very, they're like the, the, the priests of science and philosophy, and they would do a lot in terms of education. A lot of uh, colleges and universities in America and in Europe were set up by the Jesuits. So he's much more progressive 
than what Richelieu was, and that's part of the reason why they don't like him, is the the walls of the city, which keep Loudon its own sort of little fiefdom, where they can make their own rules, is uh, considered a threat to Richelieu and therefore the king, because... Grenier was one of these guys who, and it's especially spelled out in the book, who didn't have a problem with with having the Protestants in town. It's not that he protected them or anything like that. It was just sort of like, well, there's Protestants, and yes, we're Catholics, but whatever. And this comes right after a series of religious wars in France where the Protestants and the Catholics fought, and the Catholic powers were trying to expel the Protestants out. The religious wars are over. Catholic no longer fights. With Protestant. We have survived. And we owe our survival to the wisdom and to the humanity of one man, Georges de Saint-Marc, governor of Loudon. For it was he who prevailed upon all faiths alike to keep the peace and thus saved our city from self-destruction. Other towns were less fortunate. And now our friend has been killed by the plague. People of Loudon, as often as you see our city walls, standing still proud and erect, no matter what your faith, then surely you must feel a need to build a temple in your hearts in remembrance of he who preserved them for you. To have this guy who's hanging on and going, well, you know, we can all get along a little bit. That That's not going to fly with that guy who's got the ear to the king. I think the film is so loaded because there's a lot of things going on. There's a lot of layers. and um, But in, in terms of discussing its its story. First of all, let, let me begin by pointing out that the script was written by Ken Russell, and uh, it's a very beautifully written piece. I, I know he extracted elements from the original book, and there was also a play. So I don't know. I'd be curious, to, Rob, to know what you took from the book that survived in the movie, but I thought the dialogue was stunningly beautiful, and um, there's a number of very poignant and, and beautifully composed um, speeches, almost soliloquies in the film, so uh, it's it's a very finely written and constructed script, and and I guess at its core, what I took from it was it was really about the perversion of religion. You know, I think somehow the film seems to have a reputation of being an anti-religious film, but I actually thought it was the opposite. That's why I was I was sort of shocked. Like it's actually the whole point of it seems to be that it's showing how the the state and in collusion with the church, are actually doing everything they can to subvert the true intent and meaning of the Catholic faith. In fact, the only real Catholic at the end of the movie seems to be Urban Grandier, even though from the outset he is a somewhat corrupted individual. He, he, he really becomes a martyr at the end of the film. He actually ends up being a kind of Christ figure himself. And so it seemed to me that the, the movie is very, it's a very aggressively clear cry for reformation of the church. Even, and they take it to be that it's not just talking about that particular time, but probably the present day as well. And I know that Ken Russell was a, a Catholic. I don't know if he was a lapsed Catholic or long Catholic, but uh, it, it seemed to me that it was a very personal kind of movie, and it, was, it had a lot to do with his feelings about religion, and it probably had a lot to do with his feelings about himself as a filmmaker, and I imagine 
Cardinal, Cardinal Richelieu stood in for a few studio executives. <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, so that, that's, that's how I took the film, you know, in, in total. But the, the, it seems very layered to me. It seems like there's a lot going on. And, and it's obviously still very relevant because, you know, Warner Brothers won't release the movie officially. So it's, and I'm sure it's because they're terrified of the Christian right. Would, would not respond well to the movie. The thing you talk about there with it being the question of church and state, I mean, that is part of the opening conversation that you get once the king comes off the stage and we realize he's the king and he's talking to Richelieu there in the audience, is him saying, I pray that I may assist you in the birth of a new France where church and state are one. And then what's very telling is the title card of the devil's is over their face <laughs> in that conversation. Yeah. Actually cutting back and forth between them with the devils over both of their faces as we go through this. It's like, okay, yeah, we're, we're, these are the guys here. These are the ones that we're not supposed to like. I kind of like that. Yeah, it's just a very direct and, and like, here you go. Here's the bad guy. You know, I think most people watching it the first time probably wouldn't see it. They would just be like, oh, it's just the title, whatever. But the placement of the title, I think, is very, very telling. What I enjoyed was seeing Grandier kind of moving around all these different landmines that he has inside of London itself. I mean, there's uh, at least three women that are affecting his life as he's, you know, in charge here. We've got, um, uh, Georgina Hale as, um, Oh God, what's her, her character's name? Philippe. And who is kind of in his charge and he's teaching her Latin and her father has kind of sent her to him and she uh, seems to be falling in love with him as much as she can. I don't know if she necessarily has that many human emotions. Sometimes she seems very cold a lot of times, but she does kind of come around at at different points in there. It's very telling to me that we never see her without this kind of like Harlequin mask um, makeup that she's wearing through most of the film. We've got her, we've got somebody that he knows, uh, Madeline, whose mother passes away, and there's these two quote-unquote physicians that are trying to help out the, the mother, and they are... To me, they're the comic relief throughout this film, just the way that they kind of trade lines that go back and forth from one to another, and they have all these crazy ideas of medicine and what helps drive out disease and what helps drive out demons and all this kind of stuff. I absolutely love those two characters. They are um, just completely nuts, and whenever they're on screen, I like them, even though they are very despicable. And then the third woman that really comes into it is Sister Jean that you had mentioned before, Robin. She is the head of the, the convent. And she just lusts after Grenier totally and has all of these fantasies about him. Of course, with her being this nun, they have this religious overtone to every single one of them. She pictures him as being Christ, and she's just doing all of these very uh, untoward things with him and you know, licking his wounds. And just and she kind of gives herself stigmata with this cross in her palm and all this. And 
really, you know, of all the, the different, the two women that I mentioned before, he is able to kind of navigate and, you know, he ends up mirroring the one woman in this uh, cer- ceremony, manages to kind of diffuse the, the situation with the other one, even though she is still kind of a live wire and helps tip the balance a little bit. But it's really Sister Jean that is his downfall. And what's very strange to me is even though they have all these scenes together as far as her fantasy, really they don't interact except for maybe like what one part in the movie they exchange a line but otherwise she is just so far removed from him physically and he, uh, but he is yet at the center of all of these fantasies and all of these lewd thoughts that she has and just that whole idea of the repression of sexuality is what seems to drive her insane and then help drive the rest of the convent uh, a little crazy as well one of the things that she brings up in the film Vanessa Redgrave's character is the fact that they are a cloister. These women were not out of the convent. That's why when you see people come to visit them, they're talking to them through the bars, through a window or something. People sometimes will come in, but they never leave that place. And that one of the things that she says is that this is a place for the rejected. Do you know why most of us are here? Because you love our Lord Jesus Christ and wish to serve him. (laughs) Most of the nuns here are noble women who have embraced the monastic life because there was not enough money at home to provide them with dowries. <laughs> or they were unmarriageable because ugly, a burden to the family. Communities which ought to be furnaces where souls are forever on fire with the love of God are merely dead with the grey ashes of convenience. Here's a book written by the founder of our order, Angela Medici. When you've studied it, come back. I shall question you. Couple that, as you were saying, with that pent-up sexual tension and them, especially in the beginning when there's the um, parade going through for the, the, the former dead mayor, I think it is, of Loudon. And they're all like at the windows. And the only thing I could think of is it's like Beatlemania or something. Like all these nuns are like, oh, oh, you know, John, Paul, George, and Ringo are coming by. I've got to see them. And, and they're all like super excited and <laughs> to see Irving Grenier come by because, oh, he's so handsome and he's such a man of God and all of this. And it's like the only sort of like contemporary thing that I could sort of put on it is that sort of hysteria that you would see in, you know, uh, footage of, you know, girls seeing Elvis or the Beatles. Yes, I can see the procession. It's coming up the steps. If I can't see where these hands are Why have you left your devotions? They were watching Father Grandier. Oh, we wanted to see the funeral procession of Monsieur Saint-Marc, Reverend Mother. Satan is ever ready to seduce us with sensual delights. <laughs> your prayers for Saint-Marc will be the more zealous for not seeing his funeral. That is the strength of the enclosed order. I think that's a very appropriate metaphor that you're using there, especially because, I mean, in the next film that uh, Russell does, I think it's the next one, he's, he's 
you know, doing Tommy and just the way that the whole religion and rock and roll mix in that. And, and again, with uh, Listomania with rock and roll and, and um, fame and everything. So he's definitely uses that theme throughout. And yeah, definitely. I mean, we kind of almost have two rock stars in this one between Grenier is kind of all four Beatles wrapped together. Um, well, maybe not John, because really, um, when Father Barry shows up later on, I was completely reminded of Jean, John Lennon, Jean, Jean Lennon with that one, um, just because of his round glasses with the tinted uh, lenses inside. But he seemed very rock star. He, I guess really more, he seemed more like a Jim Morrison kind of a guy to me. And just the way that, you know, we have this kind of struggle um, between those two guys as well. Physic, you know, very physical struggle as it, as it is in some cases. But yeah, it's just, uh, I think that's a really um, good reading of it, as, uh, and just you know them reaching out through the bars, and and um, they're not screaming, but they, I think they would if they if they could. That's what I meant. It's a very layered movie. There's so much stuff going on in it, and um, really to do it justice, I'm sure I should watch it a few more times. <laughs> I was actually going to move on to to actually the the look of it to me, which was also particularly striking and modern and not what one would expect from a historical epic. Oh, totally. Um, just the, the the sets. I didn't realize this until I watched it this time and I looked at who the set designer was and it was Derek Jarman who went on to be a director in his own right. It's really extraordinary. I, and I believe it's the only film that he production designed. Yeah, it was his first film out of the gate. I think he wasn't even doing anything film related. The whole story is that um, I think he gave up his seat or a friend of Russell's gave up his seat to D- Jarman. I can't remember how it went. And they struck up a conversation and it was like, oh, you should meet my friend Ken. And next thing you know, they were working together on this. And really, it's just such a remarkable design. And to realize that this was all built from the ground up, it's like, really? This is this is nuts. This is just one of the most elaborate and beautiful sets I've ever seen. It's a huge set. And um, I read the Richard Krauss book, and I suppose it was one of the largest sets, or at least it took up a large portion of Pinewood, and in its original conception would have been one of the largest sets ever. <laughs> and I think they ran out of money. So, But it's it's not even just the scale of it that amazed me, it's the approach to it, because it almost, it, in a way it sort of reminded me, and I'm, maybe this was in the air at the time, um, of Fellini's Satyricon, in so much as, you know, that's a film that takes place in ancient Rome, and it um, it has the quality of a science fiction film. It doesn't really feel like the past. And I thought that was similar here because the sets are, and uh, I have to say that the DVD I had is a very low quality image, so I'm sure I didn't fully grasp what it was. But it looked like, you know, this city is built with these like immaculate marble or t- white tiled stones, and um, particularly within the the convent. And it's a almost a space age <laughs> look, and it's very clean. It's not what we usually associate with the Middle Ages. It's a very beautiful, pristine um, piece of architecture. And uh, and I think that was obviously a very bold and unusual choice. And uh, and then within that architecture, there's just the, it actually reminded me also of um, the kind of sets that you would see in a silent film, because they're very expressionistic. And um, the whole design is very formal. And, and then when the way Ken Russell lenses and composes his shots, um, there's a really amazingly graphic quality, and uh, we're about to be visited by real devil. <laughs> Hello, Matos, my two-and-a-half-year-old son. I think that is another layer to this whole thing. It's just the sheer 
formal bravado of it and the, and the choreography of the camera and the actors is really extraordinary. <laughs> so, um, and I should also say the color palette too struck me because it's almost entirely black and white, except for, um, I guess black, white, and red, really the opening shot. The, the opening shot is this extraordinary crane tracking shot. Uh, it's, uh, one of the most amazing pieces of camera choreography I think I've seen. Yeah, I love the the white outfits that the nuns wear and the white insides of the cloister and everything. And and I do love this whole idea of, you know, at one time these buildings were new, so why not now? Why not show what these buildings were like when they were, you know, first made rather than this artificial aging and giving it this, you know, really ancient look because this is contemporary times um as it were, you know, if it's shot in the um what is it 1700s 1800s when was this rob 1634 oh wow okay so way back there but yeah they they were doing some good building back then i guess well the other thing that it reminded me of in terms of the design because it is very uh uh structured i mean it's very angled and uh direct in that way is some of the uh, fascist architecture of italy that you would see under Mussolini that was very sort of formal and structured in that way. But because of that, and was looking at this, the only other film that I could think of that reminds me of this kind of design where it's taking a historical story and it's not necessarily playing within that, that ancient time is Julie Tamor's Titus in that it's sort of everywhere and nowhere. If you watch Titus, and we'll be talking about that this fall when we do the month full of Shakespeare films, in that it echoes the past, but it's contemporary at the same time. And I think in a way the design really is about Ken Russell saying, this wasn't just 1634. This is today. This was yesterday. It's tomorrow. And I think the design really gives you that sort of philosophical statement as well. I'm not trying to be a smartass when I say this, even though it might sound like it. But I was reminded so much of really elaborate, like when you go into the bottom of the the basement of the Detroit Film Theater and you go into the lavatory – it really reminded me so much of the set design, reminded me of these very ornate lavatories of old. Well, it's interesting you say that because in the documentaries and also in the commentary, Ken Russell said that there was a quote that's in the book, and I don't remember reading that quote, but he said that Huxley wrote that the exorcism of Sister Jean was like a rape in a public toilet, that he said that it was that kind of brutality. And he talks about in the commentary and also in the documentary that that image stuck in his head, the idea of a public toilet. And he wanted to use this idea of white and tile and and that kind of lavatory idea uh, for some of the designs. So you're not too far off when you get that. Well, it's also a good idea that it's all white. I mean, somebody mentioned that it's a, um, uh, I, I can't remember which documentary it was on, but somebody said, you know, this is a, a black and white film shot in color, or it's a color film shot in black and white, something like that, because it does have that limited color palette. Though I love some of the, the rainbow, the spectrum stuff that we get um, when people are inside of the, the larger halls and everything. But I like that we have this, stark white this pure white color going on as it to really kind of contrast the the moral darkness that we have in this film especially 
when the nuns get their time to go nuts, it just, you know, really stands out even more of how pure and good everything seemed to be at first and before the world, you know, hit the fan. And I guess the other point that's being made, this only occurred to me now, is that this is supposed to be a beautiful city that they're trying to preserve. And, and sort of the... Um, political subplot that's going on is that the cardinal is trying to tear down the walls so that the city will then be under the influence of the crown and won't have any independence. So um, the idea that it's a beautiful city, I suppose, just from a dramatic point of view, tells us, well, it's something that should be preserved. And it's really shocking and disturbing at the end of the movie when the walls explode. I think all the more so because they're so pristine. And that's really where it starts is when we talk about Grandier is it starts with the walls in that the crown sends their emissary and says, we're tearing down the walls. He says, uh-uh, under the former mayor, the former ruler here, the former feudal lord, we had the right to keep these walls. We're keeping these walls, and if you try to tear them down, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> yeah. Which I love, this ass-kicker Oliver Reed out there with the freaking army behind him just going like, yeah, one more brick falls, and that's it. I ask again, who is responsible here? Baron de la Bardemont, first president of the Court of Appeal, member of the Council for the State, and now his majesty's special commissioner for the demolition of the fortifications of Loudun. At your service, father. For what purpose has his majesty authorized the destruction of our town, Baron de la Bardemont? I thought you would have been the first to guess the purpose, father, and the first to condone it. Loudun is a nest of dangerous Huguenots. They outnumber we good Catholics two to one. Every single Protestant in Loudun remained loyal to the king and to France throughout the religious wars. Today's loyalty is no guarantee against tomorrow's rebellion. I speak father. as I find. Where is his majesty's proclamation? Don't concern yourself with politics, father. Your penitents are waiting. And then what happens that sort of helps to seal his fate, Grenier's fate beyond the walls, is two things. One, the, the charge that he has that he's teaching Latin to and, and all of this stuff comes up pregnant because he's been playing with her and her father's not happy and he's a you know obviously a moneyed man uh, part of the gentry the nobility there and can afford to uh, have his daughter educated and when this happens it's like what am i going to do now my daughter's pregnant i can't marry her off you know you've done this horrible thing to me and to my family you've wronged us and then the third sort of nail in the grenier coffin is when sister jean sends to have him become the instructor and spiritual advisor to the cloister. And he rebuffs her and says, no, I can't do it. I'm too busy. I got too much stuff going on. And sends another guy in his stead, Father Mignon, instead. And she then loses it. <laughs> she's so upset that she's been turned down and have now been sent this uh, sort of uh, geeky, pencily looking guy with a bowl cut to be the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the head spiritual advisor of the cloister of the the Ursulines, that uh, that's when she eventually starts to lose it. And this becomes where the conspiracy starts because Mignon, who is there and dealing with the cloister, says, there's hysterical nuns here, and I don't know what's going on. Like, if this is real or if this is just all in their heads, especially her who's running the joint. And then the the powers that be start to realize, we can use this to our advantage now. And that's where it starts to get really, really twisted in terms of all three of these things sort of intersecting and t 
twisting on top of each other, the political, the sexual, and the religious. Yeah, they're just looking for any kind of smoking gun. It is not enough that the one girl is pregnant. And I love when when Father Grenier or Urban Grenier just is like, yeah, you say that you're pregnant, but I seem to remember that I was gone for a while. And just like basically like, yeah, the kid ain't mine, you know? <laughs> It's just like he puts her in her place like so quickly and everything. And she is just, you know, so pissed off. So we've got this one pissed off woman kind of coming after him. Still not enough. But yeah, when, when Sister Jean, you know, says, oh, yeah, he visited me with all of his little demons and everything. And then it's just like, oh, fuck yeah. These guys are, are ready. They were, I love the scene the, of them conspiring that we get the the shot from underneath as we're looking at them in this huddle of everyone trying to figure out how are we going to execute this plan how are we going to get grenier out of here and great now we have this whole thing with with the sister so this is perfect we can put this guy wherever we want to you also have to remember what's that great old motto hell hath no fury like a woman scorned well he did it twice in this town and he's also pissing off the Cardinal, so there you go. The Cardinal who, what is the whole thing with him kind of being wheeled around? Is he just like so holy that he shouldn't even have to walk? I think it was more of a matter of he may have had some malady, and I think maybe Ken Russell played it up a bit more as opposed to a wheelchair. He's kind of standing in this kind of bizarre half wheelchair, <laughs> half um, like hospital bed on, you know, two wheels kind of thing. And it looked, it kind of reminded me of like, uh, maybe uh, this is going to be a bad comparison. The end of um, the the last of the Star Wars prequels where we're, where we see Darth Vader and he's, you know, standing up, you know, and on that like operating bed or whatever the hell you want to call it. I was kind of reminded of Hannibal Lecter a little bit. Yeah, I could see that too. But I think that was historically accurate, I believe. The, the the cardinal had was lame in one leg or had some kind of medical issue. But I guess it's also but just that doesn't matter really. What what matters is that he's a pathetic, petty, power hungry man, which contrasts with Granier, who is this very robust sexual being who's very comfortable with his sexuality and as a result is much more appealing and, and much more healthy. And uh, even though he himself is not far from a perfect man and, and goes through a, a, a real um, kind of redemption by the end of the movie. But I, I think it's the contrast that, between them that's, that's so important that one, Grandier is clearly at the end of the day, almost a saint. Uh, and the Cardinal is obviously utterly evil. I have never seen Oliver Reed gives such a nuanced performance as he does in this film. And you would think like the way that Oliver Reed can explode. And we, I tend to think of him as being this explosive personality more than a slow burn. I, I would have expected him to be over the top in this role so often. And he doesn't do that. He just keeps it all so close to the vest. I mean, there are times where he's giving some very rousing speeches and everything and, you know, telling the, the people in the town, listen, we run this town. They're not tearing these walls down. And yet he keeps it at an even keel as he's doing this. It's very, you know, it's appropriate the level of enthusiasm that he's giving. And then to see him just at this much lower level throughout the rest of the film, I, I really, 
I don't know why I associate with him with being this explosive personality. Maybe it's because of his, you know, the legendary drinking and all this kind of stuff. Maybe it's because I, when I think of him, I think of him turning into a werewolf, this kind of stuff. But he is, is so low key in this and it just fits the role so perfectly. And I love, there's even that moment where he is, uh, taking, um, communion and he's there and it's so quiet in this pastoral scene and it's being intercut with the nuns just going balls out nuts at you know back at the 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 town and he's you know in this very nice place and it's just going back and forth just to that contrast of just the cutting and everything, but also the contrast of performance, you know, normally I would think Vanessa Redgrave, she's going to play it quiet and Oliver Reed, he's going to be just screaming all the time. And it's completely the opposite in this one. Definitely. You know, one of the things as this goes on, like I said, there's the three different levels. We have the political, the religious and the sexual and sort of how these things get perverted and, and used is that one of the things that was given to the to the cloister was saying, look, um, you're not responsible for anything that's happened to you. You're not responsible for anything that you do from this point on. But if you recant your statements, if you go back and say that you are not possessed, if it wasn't Grenier, if it wasn't all this stuff, then you'll be damned to hell. And you don't want that. So if you're going to sign this statement saying what he did to you and his minions – then you need to stick with it. And going back to this idea of what we talked about uh, a bit ago of in the town, these these women were, as I said, they were the unwanted, they were the lame, they were the um, they, they couldn't get married, they were not the ones that people wanted. And then couple that on top of there is no there's no release valve, as you were saying, Mike. You know this sexual pent up feeling in the cloister where they have very little contact with the outside world to be given. As, as Huxley talks about in the book, to be given license to run wild like you're at a rock concert pretty much, like maybe like Woodstock, <laughs> is, uh, is, is a great freedom, is a great freedom to have because um, when are you going to have this opportunity? And not only that, but it's mentioned in the film, but it's not really given as much attention as the other elements of the story is this became a moneymaker. This became a moneymaker for the town. This became a moneymaker for that cloister, the Ursulines. It became a, uh, a moneymaker for the people that ran the local um, inns and restaurants because there were thousands of people that would come to Loudon to see them blaspheme, to see them writhe around naked, to see them do all of this stuff. And people would travel hundreds and hundreds of miles to see this. And that became a great profit center. So when, when you look at it in terms of the, the women, the women were being used. The nuns were being used by the powers. They were being used to get Grenier, but they were also being used because they were making money. They were being used because they could bring in all this attention to the place. And it's um, that's, like you were saying, Vincenzo, that's where that perversion of the faith comes from and that perversion of, of politics. You know, there's a really wonderful scene where the king shows up in the town and he goes to, what's the name of the exorcist bar? And he says, I have in this jeweled, whatever it was, box, literally the blood of Christ, the sacrament of Christ. And, and so the exorcist shows it to the nuns and they're all instantly cured. I'm free. You are most welcome, my child. You see.
see you, father? What sort of a trick have you played on us? Oh, reverend sir, what sort of a trick are you playing on us? And the joke is on the exorcist. And then the nuns go insane again. And I thought it was really, that actually was a really wonderful shade to paint into the king himself because he's, he's, he is quite villainous himself. But there's a, it actually makes him a little bit heroic. And, um, and then it just naturally tells us how utterly susceptible religion is to anything that people say or want to believe. It's a very powerful and, and strange and disturbing scene, actually. Right before he does that whole thing with the box, like all the, the naked nuns are writhing around and everything, and there's one that kind of jumps up on this platform where he is and everything. It took me a few times to watch the film to really figure out what I was hearing because the the sound design, whenever the, we have these scenes of, of the, the orgiastic nuns, I mean, the sound just goes crazy. The music is there and then the sound effects and it's just so layered with the sound and everything to the point where it, I swear to God, they must have actually mixed in hyena noises as the nuns were running around. I'm just like, that does not sound like a human laugh. <laughs> I will bet dollars to donuts that it's a hyena that's been mixed into the sound mix at one point. Actually, we should talk about uh, Peter Maxwell Davies, who did the music. That score is tremendous. He's uh, a classical composer, very and at the time, quite a controversial one and an avant-garde one. And the score is, I mean, crazy. <laughs> it's, it's really, I mean, there's... It's really, I, I, it's almost like sound design at points. It sort of merges between music and sound design. It's very atonal, very aggressive. Come on, you Protestant bastard! God, keep moving! Put your back into it! And very progressive. I'm, I'm sure there wasn't really anything like it for them. To me, it's much like the design of the picture in that it has this modern feel, and then at times there is some of this classical element that is old, you know, older, what you would consider classical element, but it's not period by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, he wasn't going, okay, well, Bach would have been around, so we got to write music that sounds like Bach. No, it's um, very much. Um, all over the map and trying, I think, once again, to give you this uh, expressionistic feeling of the emotion involved and then also this sort of everywhere, uh, yesterday, today, and tomorrow kind of idea. If memory serves, I mean, we talked about how Jarman, this was his first film that he had done production design for, only film that he had done production design for, and, and kind of his foray uh, into film world. If memory serves, this was also the composer's first film that he had done composing for. I mean, he had, had composed stuff on his own before that, but I think this was the first time he had worked with Russell, and he would work with him uh, again in the future, but I think it was really smart of Russell to have these kind of outsiders uh, bringing these fre fresh perspectives to just say, this isn't the way that it's always done. We can do it however we want to. That was such an amazing year for movies 
in general. It just seemed like things were just exploding. The French Connection came out in Straw Dogs and Clockwork Orange, and oops, <laughs> and uh, and and this film obviously is of the same caliber of those movies. Although sadly, and perhaps because it is so progressive, um, not not nearly as well known. Got one of the uh, nuns running around in the background there. <laughs> <laughs> we have more than a little bit of hysteria in this household. <laughs> All he has to do is utter the name Grenier. <laughs> well, it's it's interesting the uh, the discussion you brought up, Mike, about the whole like orgiastic nuns going crazy, and that is the scene that's intercut with. Oliver Reed, Urban Grenier doing the um, the ceremony where he sort of marries this woman, uh, not really because he can't, but that whole thing and the whole sort of communion out in the woods kind of thing that's very nice, is that was one of the scenes that was cut. And then there's a scene at the end, and we'll talk about that as well, that was also cut. But when I thought about 1971 and the fact that this film was distributed by Warner Brothers, they also had Clockwork Orange. They had two films that were very controversial in 1971, and for many people, are still quite controversial today. Yeah, if memory serves, Clockwork Orange, that one, after some controversy in the UK, Kubrick just said, okay, that's it. You don't get it anymore, and took it out of theaters. There was uh, several uh, young men who had done crimes and supposedly had linked it back to seeing Clockwork Orange or the press did. And therefore he was like, okay, well, I guess you people can't handle this. You're not adults. And it wasn't officially released, I guess, in the UK until after his death. So you could get bootlegs of it from what I, people had told me. But, but think about that. I mean, 1971, Clockwork Orange and this movie, which, you know, both of which deal with issues of free will and, political issues and, and all of that stuff. So, I mean, there is a lot of this uh, kind of in the air at that time. You know, the other thing, I can 100% guarantee you, this film could never be made today. It's no. absolutely impossible. It could only exist in that time. When Scorsese has problems with Last Temptation of Christ, which is a freaking walk in the park compared to this film, when you want to talk about mixing religion with popular culture, I mean, yeah, this one, no way in hell... Yeah, you know, like Mel Gibson's head would explode if he were to even think about a movie like this. <laughs> no, and 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 I mean, when you consider the cost too, I'm sure if this film were made now, it would, well, it would have to be at least fifty million dollars. So, uh, so that time has passed. It's, I mean, it's it's even more special for that reason. Yeah, and when you start mixing, you know, it's it's quote unquote bad enough that you have this whole idea of the free will and political self-determinism and all this, and then you start mixing in religion into the whole uh, the whole ordeal, that's when things get real sticky real fast and when people just start going nuts about stuff. And yeah, the, just the whole idea of what was cut and why it was cut and all that. I mean, the... I, I think that the rape of Christ scene is so important just to show that whole idea of the difference between what's going on it, it, with the Reed character and with this insanity of you know setting these nuns free and just letting them become unrepressed and that they are using the Christ figure you know the the taking the actual crucifix off of the wall and just gyrating and doing all of these things on there twerking whatnot it's just like you know it, it it's amazing to see that that would become the object of their uh their lusts you know it's like they are they don't have any men in their lives 
for so many days, you know, so many years, really. But the only man that they have is Christ. So, yeah, maybe they get a little um, little crazy, a little kooky with uh, their fantasies about him. And then to see some of those scenes, those orgy scenes, and just to see all of the, the men that are there fully dressed and just groping the hell out of these women. And even, you know, little Father Minion going up the, the, the ladder and... and jerking off at the the whole sight of this what i thought he was i thought he was going to go up there and like cry or be mortified or something and then when he starts playing with himself it's like wow okay yeah no one is immune to the effects of this this spectacle this orgy that's happening not even this guy who seems to be one of the most pious people in in town well plus they had been given free reign to go as crazy as they wanted to. And oh, yeah. Matter they were encouraged to do yeah, it. Yeah, and as I was saying, the the more crazy they went, basically they had more evidence against Grandier, and not only that, but the more crazy they went, they also brought in more money because of the tourism that was surrounding this for the folks who would come in and watch them do it. So I'm guessing that after because – Grenier eventually has his quote-unquote trial, which I found hilarious. There's one part where he's like, oh, it'll all come out at the trial. And they're like, yeah, yeah, about that trial. Uh, let's shave your head. We're going to go put you out on the on the stake out here. I'm wondering what the timeline was like in real life as far as, you know, was it Grenier? I mean, spoilers, guys, but Grenier eventually gets burnt at the stake and basically becomes this martyr to to his cause and, and to freedom really in real life were those nuns still possessed after his death was that whole idea of the spectacle the the sideshow as it were did that happen after he was gone were they still possessed that's one of the things that is really one of the big differences between the book and the film now the play that the uh, the film is sort of based on the play in terms of the the drama aspects was uh, written by John Whiting and produced in 1961 by the Royal Shakespeare Company. So Ken Russell, when he sat down, he had the play and he had um, Huxley's book. Now, I haven't seen the play. I haven't read the play. So I don't know how many of, as Vincenzo was saying, these uh, monologues or whatever come out of that play. Although uh, Whiting doesn't get, I don't think, uh, co-screenwriter or story credit or anything like that. Although I think um, he's listed as you know one of sources on the credits. What's interesting with the book is that a lot of these things that are brought up are expanded upon, obviously, because you have more time to do it. Uh, first off, like I said, the whole thing with the tourism, the whole aspect of explaining this entire universe in which we're working, the idea that you know the priest is kind of, as I said, sort of the rock star. He's the main guy in town. People look up to him. There really is nothing secular, so everything is all centered around the church and everything. You know, If, if someone was going to have sexual thoughts or none was going to have sexual thoughts, it only makes sense that it would be about Christ because who else are you going to have? Because that's the image you have in front of you, you know, basically from the minute you open your eyes to the minute you close your eyes every day. You were asking about timeline. Uh, I believe it took place over about a year, and he was burned at the stake in August of 1634. And after he was burned at the stake, the nuns continued to live in the cloister, and people would still come to visit, although the episodes became less and less frequent, people became less and less interested, and eventually it kind of all died out. Um, Sister Jeanne's head was eventually removed at her death and was placed at the church, and people would come and venerate it. They would come and you know basically pray to it or touch it. It became like this idol 
kind of thing for a while. The other thing was, is and this is as fascinating, I think, as what happened with her, where she continued to live on the rest of her life, and people would come to visit her, and she became sort of so equated with this episode in her life that she had nothing else, that it was all related to this episode. That's all anyone ever wanted to talk about. It's all anyone ever cared about. It was just this episode dealing with Loudon and Grenier and all that stuff. And it almost seems like she became caged in by it. And the other guy, Father Mignon, who was who had a hand in you know helping the accusers and in getting Grenier burned at the stake, he suffered psychosomatic illness for about 30, 40, 50 years. I can't remember exactly how long. He lived quite a long time after this whole episode, and his health continued to fail. And from what Huxley writes in the book is that he was so distraught at the guilt that he realized that this guy was innocent, that he really didn't do anything and felt so guilty about it in the end that he just couldn't like deal with himself. And he kept praying for death. He was like, come take me. I'm done. I can't deal this anymore. And um, just slowly just continued to have all these health issues. And it's really kind of sad and pathetic because really I think the end of the book from what I remember, it's all about him. It's all about his journals and things that he wrote and and Huxley explaining sort of like what happened after. So that stuff is, to me, just as fascinating as what Ken Russell shows in the film. Yeah, I'm sure there's a much larger story at work. And I know there were parts of the film that Ken Russell either couldn't, yes, there were, that's right, there were parts of the film that he couldn't afford to shoot. There was a whole passage, I think, where I believe Oliver Reed goes to see the king that they completely took out of the movie just simply because they ran out of money. Yeah, because after a while, the king just kind of disappears. And really, I don't, I'm trying to remember when the last time we see Cardinal Richelieu is, because really kind of after a point, it really becomes just the, the guys that are kind of tormenting and putting um, him on trial in the dawn. I don't remember if Richelieu is even kind of there, but then again, politically wouldn't necessarily make sense for him to show his face or show his hand at this point. And he, yeah, he doesn't need to. And by the way, that's one of the most excruciating torture scenes I've ever seen. Oh. Even with some of those shots taken out, because I kept rewinding and going back, the whole part where uh, Father Barr is like doing something with the mallet and the wood and all this stuff, and I'm just like, I'm not really sure what's happening here, but Oliver Reed is not very happy. (laughs) they, They break his legs, and they don't really show you how they do it. But I remember from my research into all kinds of stuff related to the Inquisition years ago that what it was was this thing. It looked kind of like a boot that they would put your leg in, and it was a piece of wood on one side, a piece of wood on the other, and it was held together with straps. And what they would do is they would put a um, basically sort of like – like a wedge in between your leg bone and the piece of wood and then would hammer it down. And what it would do is it would just shatter your leg bones. And it was one of the methods of torture that they used to try and get confessions out of people. And that's what you see. You don't actually see them do it. It's more kind of off screen, but you see his face and his reaction to the pain as they bang this wedge in between basically two, two by fours attached to his leg and, it completely shatters his leg and then you have this whole thing where they're trying to get him to stand up they're like stand up when they're taking him to the um to the stake to be burnt he can't because he doesn't his leg bones are completely shattered from basically the knee down the torture scene is so horrible that it's actually a relief when he burns 
you're actually glad to see him burn just because it seems so painful for him to be alive. In them, like kicking his legs as he's crawling across the the stage by the stake and everything. It's just like, you guys are dicks, man. And not giving him his, what was he calling it? His final promise, his, his kiss, you know, like looking for relief because the whole idea was you do not let them burn at the stake. You actually kill them beforehand and then just burn the body. And I like how the executioner is just like, yeah, yeah, I'll do that for you. And they refuse him that and they let him burn and die that way rather than killing him beforehand. It's just like, wow, you guys really are doing a job. Yeah, and the executioner is so angry at uh, Father Barr and them, and he's just like, I was supposed to do that. You know, Why did you do that? Why did you start the fire already? One of the things that is interesting to me, and part of the reason why I wanted to do the show, is that one of the two investigators in Huxley's book was a priest that was sent from Tours, France, was about 70 miles from Loudon. And at the time, in the 1630s, my family would have lived in Tours. So I wonder if my relatives would have known that priest who was sent to investigate Urban Grenier. And my family came to the New World under the new king, Louis XIV. And it was Louis-Marie de Saint-Marie was sent by Louis XIV to Montreal in 1665. So at that time, there was only about 1,000 people who lived in Montreal. So it's kind of interesting. I'm sure that Tours France at the time probably was, I don't know, maybe a couple of thousand people. And I'm sure they didn't have multiple churches. So my family probably knew this priest or supposedly uh, who was sent over to Loudon to look into uh, Urban Grenier. So it's kind of interesting to uh, to think about that. And that was one of the things that made it interesting when reading the Huxley book. So I would definitely say that if you like Aldous Huxley, if you like Brave New World, if you like um, maybe Doors of Perception, other things that he's written, this one is a little bit of a departure because it's a historical, I guess you could call it a historical novel, but it's not uh, fiction in that way. And as a matter of fact, a lot of the things that are in the book are even more uh, over the top. One of the things that was huge, and you talked about it a little bit, Mike, at one point, is the amount of forced fluids that were being pushed into the nun's various orifices. Ooh, uh, good lord. And specifically enemas. It was almost like um, John Harvey Kellogg on steroids, except he wasn't doing it for your health. And just really heavy, heavy, heavy stuff. The idea of like flushing out the bowels. <laughs> yeah, and that whole thing where the those two idiots that I was talking about before are like examining all the stuff that was coming out of Sister Jean, and it's just like, oh yeah, well that's definitely semen, and that's this, and I love how you know even though this is a pretty heavy film, they still take time to make a joke where it's just like you know looking through all this stuff. Oh yeah, this is this, this is this, and it's like, well what's that over there? Oh, it's a carrot cut. You know, it's just like, oh yeah. <laughs> It's like a great little laugh line that they have in there. Yeah, and it's a laugh that comes out of something that's totally unfortunate and and horrible. I mean, it would be like maybe 400 years from now getting laughs at waterboarding jokes, you know, or something. It's just. I already laugh at waterboarding jokes. <laughs> but, I mean, it was true torture. I mean, that's what they did to these, to these women. It just sort of shows the depravity and how far that they were willing to go in order to get this done, in order to tear down the walls of this town when this priest defied them and said he wasn't going to do it. Yeah, and that's one of the most remarkable things to me. It's just like all of these things, you know, these horrible, horrible things and all of this, you know, the, the sexual depravity, the stuff that was shocking to audiences back then and probably to a lot of people still now it's all in service of just this political maneuvering and it's like my god to go to these 
incredible lengths to keep your hands clean in a way and to use religion as this tool to get what you want and to do this stuff. I mean, I'm surprised that, uh, you know, the the political right in our country doesn't actually kind of partner up with the church and actually use, you know, the the, the Christian right um, for, you know, trying to get political. Oh, wait, never mind. Well, we should be so lucky that things are not as bad as they once were. So Not yet. So not when yet. we talk about the good old days, these were definitely not it. As a matter of fact, The Devils, I would say, is a very good treatise. And especially, like I said, with that line up the front, I'm here to help you bring church and state to be one. This is definitely a, a film that talks about what can happen when you have the powers working together, colluding together to get the things done and who can kind of get crushed in its wake. It's a very sad uh, commentary. And and I think that in a lot of ways, like I said, going back to the design, going back to the music, going back to the ideas that Ken Russell brings in terms of the visuals in this film, I, I don't think he wants us to view this through the lens of this just happened in 1634 in a small town in France. No, he wants us to realize that this could be you. This could be you next. This could be this could be England. This could be America. This this happens every day in Pakistan. This happens in Iran. This happens in Sudan, where a woman was recently tried with apostasy because she converted to Christianity from Islam and was to be killed for it. But they were going to wait until she had the baby. So at least she has that going for her. So all of these things still happen. It's not 400 years ago. And I think really it is a cautionary tale as to what can happen when these powers come together and they can corrupt. Well, I think it's very telling, too, just to look at some of the history that you put together. You kind of have a little bit of a timeline going here as far as when the book was versus the play versus the opera that was based on it versus the Polish film Mother Joan of the Angels that came out. And it was really within this, like, what, 40-year span? No, less than that of, like, 52 to, like, I think the last – Opera Revival was 75, and you've got the Devils in here at 71, and just all of this you know, turmoil and all of these during that time and just all of these different retellings of this story, this kind of cautionary tale, I found to be very fascinating that all of this was happening, and not just – in the U.S., that we have, you know, like a Polish film being made out of this, we have an opera being made out of this, we have a play being made out of this, and it's just very interesting to see all of these different interpretations and what time that all of this stuff was happening. I think it has a lot to do, if you think about it, with the revival of conservatism post World War II, not only in America but also in the UK. I mean, obviously, when we're talking about the book written by Huxley, it was it was published in 1952. And then the play, The Devils by John Whiting, which was produced by Royal Shakespeare Company in 1961. Then you have the opera by Christoph Penarecki, who most people would know, especially film freaks like us, would know Penarecki's work as being very atonal and droning uh, at times because his music was featured in The Exorcist and specifically in The Shining. That was in 69, and then he revised it in 72 and 75. And as you were talking about Mother Joan of the Angels from 1961, which is a Polish film, 
And what's interesting to me is that you have two sort of adaptations of this tale of the Devils of Ludon, first off with Penderecki, who was Polish, and what critics say about that opera that he did is that they saw it more as a commentary between the battle of central and localized political power and him making a comment against totalitarianism. So that's obviously something he would know about living under the Iron Curtain in Poland. And then you have Mother Joan of the Angels, which I would say is a very loose adaptation. It doesn't reference Irving Grenier or anything like that. It's sort of a similar story set in a similar time and place, an idea. It's definitely much more slow-moving. I found it to be – it was one of those – again, I'm not trying to be trite when I say this. There are a lot of times where when I go to see – an art film, or if I sit down to see an art film, and I would kind of consider this to be that, you know, it was very um, slow moving, it was very contemplative, it, it was um, kind of reminded me a little bit of some early Kurosawa, a little bit of Bergman, and just this kind of uh, slower pace to it, which I enjoy, this, this contemplative feel. But there are a lot of times where I really appreciate kind of being locked in a theater when it comes to some of these films where it's like if i try to sit at home and i've got day-to-day noises and tasks and things that i need to be doing i am much more likely to not pay attention or to stop the film and go up and and do whatever i need to do and just not enjoy the viewing experience whatsoever but when it comes to a film like this i would love to see it in a theater just for a the communal experience and b the whole idea that i am there just to see this film and i'm going to sit my ass down and i'm going to watch it because i will say that as i tried to watch it in my living room it was just like yeah you know checking my watch and checking all this other stuff and it's like I know that it's a good film, but I just was not able to invest myself in it. It did have certain elements that I liked. In, in a lot of ways, it kind of reminded me of Dreyer's The Passion of Joan of Arc, the silent film, because it's, um, it's shot in Academy Square aperture. There's a lot of close-ups of faces. It has that, obviously, religious overtone when we talk about Dreyer's Passion of Joan of Arc. And... The one thing that I did like about it, which I found fascinating, is there's this scene in there, and I don't know if you remember this or not, uh, where he goes, what it is is there's this priest, and then there's Mother Joan of the Angels, who basically is Sister Jean from uh, Devil's Ludon. And it's a similar story where we're being told that uh, nuns are being you know, possessed by devils, and they're kind of freaking out, although not to the extent that the devils by Ken Russell. So they actually keep their clothes on, they kind of dance around a bit. And, um, the, uh, but the, there's this one scene that I really like in there where, um, the, the priest who's kind of under suspicion for all this, he goes to visit this rabbi. And this is a time, obviously, medieval Europe, medieval Poland, um, you know, Jews didn't fare too well during those times. And he goes to talk to him, and they're having this conversation about, you know, God and angels and devils and all of this stuff. It's a fascinating little conversation between a priest and a rabbi about how they view religion, and they're viewing it from a different angle. And there's sort of this um, holistic totality that I, I guess is a, a term that I'll create that um, the rabbi discusses, where he's like, yeah, he's like, you know, you can't really separate one from the other. Like everything has been created. You know, good and evil is all together in one you can't say that one is because of the other or you know there's i can't remember exactly how he phrases it but there's this whole sort of philosophical discussion about sort of the balance of of good and evil and how 
the the priest is sort of looking at it from the angle of evil is something that infects us while the rabbi is like no it's something we need to be aware of but it is present and it is part of the whole creation now when this priest and rabbi are talking they're in a bar and one of them has a duck no, there was a priest, a rabbi, and, uh, and never mind. That's old joke. Okay. But um, the the one thing about the priest and the rabbi scene is I thought they were the same guy. Did you get that? They almost look exactly the same, except the the rabbi has a longer beard. Yeah, yeah. I had a little bit. Other than than Mother Joan herself, I had a little bit of trouble keeping some of the characters um, separate. And I think again, had I been forced to watch this, and even if I watched it a, a second time, I think I would have gotten a lot more out of this and and understood more. So I would say Mother Joan of the Angels, it's worth taking a look if you want to be a completist and you're really interested in all things related to the devils and and the Devils of Ludon uh, story. I I think it's worth a look that way. Uh, By itself, maybe. I don't know. I can't... uh, I can't wholly recommend it. I think it would be a good double feature with like the seventh sign, seventh seal. Which one is that? Seventh seal. The seventh seal. The one with... with, um um, Bruce Willis's wife. No, that's the seventh. Demi sign. Moore. That's the seventh. Oh, okay. Sign. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be a good. It'd be a good uh, double feature with that. <laughs> really? No. Okay. Good. With the Bergman yes, film. Thank yes. Thank you. All right. Yeah, I always you get those two confused all the time. All the time. One has a chess playing uh, Max von Sydow, and the other has Demi Moore. Would he die for you? Would you die for him? That's what the line is. Okay. We're going to take a break and play an interview with Richard Krauss, the author of Raising Hell, Ken Russell, and the Unmaking of the Devils, after these messages. Life's complicated. That's why Dazed and Convicted has health and lifestyle tips to really help you with those day-to-day dilemmas. The only way to stop the itching and burning and sedate the empty feeling is to wear a butt plug for an hour. Plus relationship hints. You know, Rafe tells a gal all she needs to know about a guy. Recipe ideas. Place thumbs, anus, scrotum, and testes in the freezer. Information on local community services you may not know about. A lot lizard is quite simply a prostitute who works truck stops and rest stops. And health advice you can trust. Lesbian humping with a man in the room running a camera and adding his man splash to the festivities can, can help prevent breast cancer. Health and lifestyle on the Dazed and Convicted podcast at dazedandconvicted.com. Movies need only three things. Badasses. You tell me who you want done, and I'll do the hell out of it. A chick with drive who don't take no jive. Boobs. Do you know that the female breast, known to be the source of life since Eve, can be deadly weapons? And body counts. Mathematics of Murder and Menace. The BBNBC podcast discusses lesser-known action, exploitation, and horror cult cinema. You can find the show on iTunes, Stitcher Smart Radio, and SoundCloud by searching for BBNBC Podcast. You can also listen to each episode directly on the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Got the goddamn message? Let's go to work. If you listen to Proudly Resents, the cult movie podcast you would know how to properly crush a head well let's say you want to crush a head like toxic avenger or the famous full head crushing scene you take a cantaloupe 
carve out the inside. Then you load what we call loading the cantaloupe. We used to put in hamburger mixed with cranberry sauce, but now because I'm a vegetarian, it's only cranberry and spaghetti and things that are not animal. Then you put a wig on the cantaloupe and paint a little happy face. Bingo. That was Lloyd Kaufman from Troma Films. To hear more interviews and reviews, go to proudlyresents.com or find Proudly Resents on iTunes and Stitcher. So what was your relationship with the devils before you decided to write this book? Well, it had been a movie that I had heard an awful lot about uh, over the years, just online. Um, I'd seen it many, many years ago. And then uh, probably now about four years ago, I was uh, asked to host an evening here in Toronto at the Bloor Cinema with Ken Russell. They were going to show the movie, and then I was going to interview Ken on stage afterwards. And so uh, I was excited. I mean, you know, the movie Tommy, when I was a kid, was uh, something that was a must-see for me. And I lived in a very small town in Nova Scotia, and that movie was just never going to make it down that far. And the closest it was probably going to get was about 200 miles away uh, in a city called Halifax. So I... uh, um, snuck out of the house early one day. I saved up my money for a while and I snuck out of the house. I was probably 11 or 12 years old and I hitchhiked the 200 miles to Halifax and I bought a ticket for Tommy, loved it, went back out to the box office, bought another ticket, watched it again, went out, bought another ticket and watched it a third time and then hitchhiked home, hoping that my parents would notice. And of course they did and I was grounded for about a year, but it was worth it. So I've been a Ken Russell fan for a very long time. So I was excited to do this uh, Q&A. And so on the night of the Q&A, uh, it's decided that, you know, we should have dinner together beforehand. And so I, and I talk about this a little bit in the book, Ken and I, and, and a number of others, his wife and the promoter of the show and a few other people, we go to a, a restaurant and, uh, as we're, you know, sitting down, I uh, introduce him, uh, introduce myself to him. We shake hands. He uh, nods at me very pleasantly, but doesn't say anything. And then I begin to pick up that no matter what I say to him or what anybody says to him, he just wasn't going to say anything. He did not speak all the way through dinner. And it's a little disconcerting knowing that you're about to step on stage in front of about 900 or 1,000 people uh, and try and interview someone who you've never actually heard utter a word in person. (laughs) And so um, I left the dinner uh, a little freaked out and went over to the theater. And, of course, there were, you know, 900 or 1,000 people there or something. And I did a little bit of warm-up. I told the Tommy story. I talked about him a little bit. And then I finally got a, a call saying, you know, Ken's on the way. He's going to come down the aisle uh, in about two minutes. So I'm, I'm you know, giving the, the long introduction to him. And as soon as he walked into the theater uh, and people noticed him, they stood up and they applauded and, and they, they brought him in. It's, it's, it's if I had just said, ladies and gentlemen, Elvis has just come back from the dead and here he is. Um, they were that delighted to see him. And I think that audience reaction really uh, warmed him uh, because he uh, opened up. He was a great interview. He talked about uh, working with Oliver Reed. He talked about making this film. He talked about all sorts of stuff, took questions from the audience. We talked for quite a while uh, before we screened the film. And then I saw the, the 
film again that night. I thought, you know, this is this is a movie that deserves to be seen. It is a masterpiece uh, by a film director who has, in a lot of ways, had been unfairly forgotten about in in his latter years. And uh, I just thought that it might be a, a, a fun book. And I kind of filed it away until I thought, you know, the next time I meet with my publisher, I'll mention it. And I had a few ideas for books, and we were having lunch, and um, I pitched one idea, and she shot that one down. I pitched another one, and she's like, I don't know about that. And we pitched another one. She didn't love it. And then she said, do you have anything else? And I said, well, listen, I have one more, but I don't know if you're going to go for it. It's about a crazy movie that nobody has seen. Uh, It's a Ken Russell film. It's The Devils. I gave her the pitch, and she said, yeah, absolutely. That's the one we want over lunch. And I started on it the next day. Wow, that is awesome. (laughs) um, What were some of the challenges faced with writing about a film that was that old, and I hate to use the word obscure because it's been known to me for a while, but it's really not one of the, the you know, it wasn't a blockbuster when it came out, obviously. Well, no, it was, it was you know, the opposite of a blockbuster. I mean, um, and not anything much to do with the quality of the film, but the outrage that surrounded the film when it came out. You have to remember that uh, when this movie was being made, the studio system was falling apart, Hollywood just doesn't understand how to connect with young people. And so they were looking around to get new kind of hip directors. And Ken Russell would have been about 40 at the time, which in 1970 was considered young and, you know, still pretty hip. He was uh, making movies that that made money and, and then had a bit of edge to them, like Women in Love and that sort of thing. And so he gets hired to make this movie. He's making it at Pinewood in England, so very far away from Hollywood. They build an enormous set, the biggest set uh, to date uh, since Cleopatra. They have Oliver Reed, who's a huge European star, Vanessa Redgrave, who's a huge international star. Uh, you know, this is a, a, a big Hollywood project. And then, as you know, Ken told me, uh, the boys from Burbank actually read the script and they freaked out and they got cold feet. So by the time he was finished uh, making this movie, uh, he hands in a cut and they're like, well, we just, you know, we, we can't have a scene called The Rape of Christ in this. We can't have. Uh, you know, there's a masturbation scene with a with charred tibia um, that they said, you know, we just, we simply cannot allow this to, um, to, uh, to be screened. So cuts were made there and then cuts were made by censor boards. And Joe Dante told me, he said, it was the only movie that was in general re- release at the time that every time you saw it, it was a slightly different movie because someone had been offended by something and chopped it out. So the movie never really had a chance to be seen properly. So the challenges uh, in terms of writing about a, a movie like that is A, finding a copy of it that has all the stuff in it that you want to see because you can't write about um, you know, a film until you see, the, see it in its entirety. So that was a challenge. Uh, it was a 40-year-old film. Um, when I started writing the book, uh, Ken was 80 and or 81. Uh, he had just suffered some strokes, um, which made it very difficult to communicate with him. Uh, everyone else that had worked on the film was in their 70s and 80s. And, you know, it just took and, and had scattered to the winds. You know, uh, some of the actors were relatively easy to find. I mean, I've written a number of these kind of books where, you know, part of the thing is becoming a movie detective and and tracking people down and, you know, uh, finding 
uh, you know, little bits of information that lead you to people. So I was able to track down the actors, but finding the uh, editor, Mike Bridezell, I really began to to think was going to be the key to uh, be sort of the backbone of this book. And he was very difficult to find. He was older. He had retired. And uh, here in Canada, they've got uh, the Canadian cinema editors, and the Canadian cinema editors host an award show every year, and I was hosting it uh, around the time that I was writing this book, and I thought, well, maybe this is the way I'm going to find Mike Bradzell, and I literally at the cocktail party after the show, I stood on a table and said, does anybody here know Mike Bradzell? And one hand went up in the back. And it was an older guy who had been uh, an editor for a very long time, and he had worked with Bradzell and was still in touch with him. And that's how I managed to find him. Um, so, you know, some of it's luck. Some of it is extremely challenging. Some of it is just, you know, being dogged enough to go down every dark alley until you find all the people that you need. Um, and then, you know, the idea of, of just writing the book, it's a re- an extremely dark subject matter. And it took me about two and a half years to write the book uh, in terms of finding everybody and doing all the research and that sort of thing. And it's a, it's a dark thing to live with uh, for that amount of time. And, you know, I, I think probably in terms of the, the, the ultimate challenge, that might have been it for me is, is uh, living with this extremely dark subject matter that I was um, you know, writing about every single day uh, was probably, at the end of the day, the most challenging thing about writing the book. I really appreciated how much attention you paid to Derek Jarman and the relationship between Jarman and Russell on that film. Yeah, well, Derek Jarman is a fascinating uh, character, and I mean, one that I wish a number of people obviously you know were are no longer alive and so I wasn't able to do uh, fresh interviews with them but Derek Jarman was uh, someone that I would have loved to have uh, spent some time with you know and uh, he was as much as Ken Russell was an iconoclast who really did things his own way and um he brings uh, a feel and a look and a and a just sort of an atmosphere to the devils that other set designers who might have had more experience, I don't think would have been able to uh, duplicate or to bring to the project. And, and I say that because um, this was the first film that Derek Jarman had worked on. He didn't know the rules. He didn't know what was sort of the right way or the wrong way to do things. And so he just went, um, he, he tried to fulfill his vision um, as an artist would. And the film absolutely uh, shows that. I mean, every moment of this film, every shot in this film is gorgeous. And I mean, part of it is uh, Ken Russell's eye, but, you know, a huge part of it is Derek Jarman's uh, ability to uh, create, you know, slightly other world, a slightly otherworldly feel to a movie that is set 400 years ago. I think the other thing that I liked is that you did such a great job tracking down some of these people and going to some of the biographies if they weren't still around, these kind of things, and then also having that mix of the contemporary people that were talking about the book. Yeah, we're well, talking about the film. It was important to me. I mean, you know, as I started to research uh, the book and, you know, my, my feelers went out further and further, a few people got in touch with me. Guillermo del Toro was one of them and just said, you know, I don't think a week has gone by since I first saw that movie that I haven't watched at least part of it on, you know, if not the entire thing. 
Um, you know, when I was a kid, I had a VHS tape that I wore out because I watched it over and over and over again. And I learned one of the ways I learned how to speak English was by watching this movie. And so I thought, you know, that's a, that's an amazing story. And I mean, I wouldn't, I shouldn't have been terribly surprised that Guillermo del Toro was a fan of Ken Russell and or the devils, but, uh, you know, other people started to, to pop up. John Landis had some interesting stories, Joe Dante, Rod Lurie, uh, it went on David Cronenberg, you know, people that I really admire and respect, um, you know, ended up, uh, helping me out to just sort of place the film in some kind of context. I wanted to have, uh, contemporaries of Ken Russell and, uh, and people that necessarily are his peers, I guess, uh, talk about the film and how much it meant to them because, you know, this was a film that had been in many ways just written off. Uh, people, you know, I mean, be, because you, it's very difficult to see, because, um, you know, it got terrible reviews when it came out. Uh, people had just written it off, and it really truly is a brilliant movie. And I really wanted to sort of uh, add some context in there in terms of, of Ken Russell's peers talking about it and, you know, talking about how great a film it was. I thought that was important to just to add some, some uh, color to the book. No, I think it was great. I thought it was uh, a really nice touch to see that it still resonates all these years later with people that are currently making movies now or you know doing contemporary criticism. So that was really a nice touch to to have that mix of the two. So it must have been you were talking about just the amount of people that have passed away um, with uh, who are in the movie or involved with the movie were. I'm sure you had a lot of people pass away just while you were doing the research on it. Well, most notably Ken Russell, um, you know, and um, that was, uh, it wasn't, I shouldn't say that it was a shocker when it happened because he was ill and, and uh, but I mean, it was, it was very sad. Um, you know, he was someone who worked right up until the end, uh, even though he had difficulty raising money to make movies and, uh, you know, no studio would give him a huge sum of money anymore to make a film. He continued to try and create art right up until, um, you know, literally almost his last days uh, when he just simply wasn't able to. And, you know, when his wife, uh, Lizzie, when I sent her the book and said, would you have a look at it and just, you know, tell me what you think, um, she wrote me back a letter and, and it was just the most lovely thing when she said, you know, Ken Russell uh, gives us the stamp of approval from that film site in the sky. And for me, that was, uh, you know, I mean, it had been, it was one of those uh, in the, in the latter part of the book, once everything was done and uh, the, the book has been locked. Um, often what happens is you send it around to various people, hoping that they'll read it and like it and give you a blurb for the back of the book. And we were lucky, Terry Gilliam and, you know, David Cronenberg and Guillermo and lots of people uh, gave us lovely quotes for the back of the book. But uh, when Lizzie uh, Tribble, who was Ken Russell's wife, emailed me with that uh, little bit of praise, that really meant a huge amount to me because she knew Ken as well as anybody and, you know, had been uh, uh, not only, you know, his wife and, and supporter, but his biggest fan as well. And so that was really uh, a, a big thing for me. You talked about how difficult the film is to see. What is the best version, in your opinion, that is out there currently? Well, there's a, a couple of versions that are around. There's I'm no fan of bootlegs. I have to tell you, I'm I'm sort of anti-bootleg. But in this case, there is a a version 
um, that is under a label. I don't know if it's not a label. It's 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 a bootleg uh, called Angel Video, and it is probably the closest thing to a complete copy of the Devils that you're going to find. Now you have to go to some scary, deep, dark, weird corner of the internet to find it, but it has uh, some of the scenes are recreated, and they're recreated extremely well. Um, and the footage has been gleaned from. Uh, documentaries and you know little bits and pieces that people saw on television recorded and then w- it was all cut together to recreate the excised scenes from the film um, so that's out there uh, there is a BFI version British Film Institute version um, that is of beautiful quality the movie has been restored uh, Warner Brothers a few years ago spent quite a bit of money to restore it uh, and then chose not to release it uh, so the BFI, I think, got a hold of the restored print, minus all the scenes that had been cut originally, and uh, have released that. And it's easy to get to available on the BFI website, and it's a beautiful-looking version of the film. And the film still really works without all the uh, you know scenes that were considered to be too wild. It really, it, it, it's one of those things, it's like a, a great song. You know, you can hear uh, an amazing song on a record that has a beautiful orchestral background and, and you know, an, an amazing arrangement. But if you strip all that stuff away, the song still has to work as a song. And The Devils is like that. The Devils is a movie that even though parts, parts of it have been stripped away, it still works beautifully. So the BFI version, definitely worth a look because it, it is, uh, it's very eye-friendly. It's beautiful reproduction of the film. The Angel video copy is a little rough. It's a little rockier, but it still is uh, probably the most complete version that's available out there. While you were doing your research, what was some of, what were some of the things that surprised you the most as you were digging into this film? Um, that it was such a big production at the time. I don't think that I understood that when I first started writing the book, um, that it was you know, a, a really a huge major motion picture. And, you know, by today's standards, the budget was ludicrously small. But back in those days, three million bucks was a lot of money to spend on the movie. And and, and this is a, a film that um, every dime that was spent on it is on the screen. And so uh, there's that. Um, I love that the composer, the, the man who did all the just absolutely odd, atonal, anxiety-inducing score uh, for this film was, at the time, living at the Orkney Islands, which are these little islands off Scotland, and there was no power, and, and you know, he was collecting driftwood every day uh, to build fires to keep warm. And uh, he uh, told me that, that's why I said, well, you know, this sounds very remote. He goes, oh, yeah, you know, absolutely, it's very remote. I said, well, how did you get a piano up there? And he said, well, I, I didn't. I didn't have any instruments at all. I just heard the score in my head, and then I wrote it down. I wrote down the notes. And he said, I, I never really heard it until uh, the film was done. And then we started to all, we brought in musicians, and we put it all together. And I thought that was a really fascinating thing and something that I hadn't heard before. Um, the stories about... Uh, Ken Russell's dealings with the censor board um, and the back and forth and, you know, you have to take out 10 frames here and four frames here and that kind of thing, um, I thought were also really fascinating and a real study in, you know, compromise. Uh, Ken Russell is often seen as a filmmaker who was completely 100% 
against censorship and 100% against compromise. And in some ways he was, except that, oddly enough, considering that a lot of his greatest works uh, were banned and were censored and that sort of thing, um, that he was kind of for censorship uh, in, you know, as, as Ken Russell, as only Ken Russell could be. We, meaning that, you know, he, it's, his thoughts on it are fairly contradictory and don't make a huge amount of sense. But when you hear them come out of Ken's mouth, you kind of think, oh, well, that kind of makes sense because he was just such a singular and unique individual. So I, I found all that stuff interesting. There were, you know, every day working on this project was uh, a, a revelation. Something interesting would happen, whether it was, you know, Dudley Sutton uh, telling me stories about how, you know, when the naked nuns were running around, one of his jobs on set was to uh, have a little hair dryer and warm them because they it was cold while they were shooting. Um, and that, you know, to shoot the, the, the insane scene, which has since been cut out of the film, uh, where there's naked nuns and priests having a huge orgy in a church, uh, that, you know, Ken Russell took a week to shoot the scene, and uh, he would, in the morning, every morning, roll out a cart of booze and just let people drink, and so it would loosen them up a little bit to get the kind of wild fervor that he really wanted to capture on screen. So, you know, all of those things... Uh, were, I thought, a really fascinating uh, look into Ken Russell's creative process and the process of getting this extremely difficult film made. I loved all of the different stories about the atmosphere on set because some people would paint it as a nightmare, other people, yeah, it was a lot of fun, and then it seems like the truth maybe lies somewhere in between. Well, you, you found, uh, or I found, doing the interviews for this book, uh, that the truth was always somewhere in between. <laughs> and, you know, Dudley Sutton, uh, who plays uh, Delardemont in the film, told me, you know, a, a long story about having to reshoot the end of the film. And, you know, it's, it's, it's in the book. And uh, no one else seemed to be able to back it up. And um, everyone had a slightly different version of it. And Dudley, finally, when I asked him about it again, he said, well, who's to say my version's not the right one? And, you know, part of the trouble of writing a, a book, you know, of an event uh, after 40 years is that people's memories do fade and, and stories get a little bigger over time and that kind of thing. And so, you know, there certainly there was a lot of just disgraceful behavior on that set. Uh, in terms of some of the male extras groping these young uh, women who had been hired to play nuns and who for weeks at a time on set were, you know, either partially naked or naked. And, uh, the, you know, this was something that, you know, it was the dawn of a new age in British filmmaking. There hadn't been that much nudity before. And so perhaps, you know, it's like that old story about, uh, the uh, little people who were working on, uh, you know, The Wizard of Oz, and, you know, they had, you know, as the legend goes, and it's since been proven to not be true, but, you know, that they had orgies because they had never been in such a large group of, of people who looked like them before. And I think that it's the same kind of thing here in, in uh, The Devils. Uh, these extras, um, the men anyway, had just never been uh, given the situation to be around young naked women, and they responded really poorly. And I think that that is as as true as um, as uh, that, that is the the overarching. Uh, truthfulness of that story. Some of the details here and there, uh, everybody told me slightly different things, so it's hard to know what was true and what wasn't. And so when I couldn't figure it out, 
when I couldn't uh, uh, corroborate it through two or three different people, I would just put both stories in the book and, and, and let people decide for themselves. Going back to the censorship issue, I was very surprised at some of the quotes from the head of the censorship board and just the way that he seemed to kind of be looking out for Russell and looking out for this film as it was going through the process. Well, I think that they realized that it was, you know, kind of a genius movie. Um, it was going to be a very difficult movie. It was going to be a, a movie that nobody really wanted to be the final one to sign off on, I don't think. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that the, the censor board at the time, apart from, you know, some of the older types who were literally probably, you know, very Victorian in their attitudes towards uh, sex or anything, you know, remotely uh, body. Um, I, I think beyond those people, the sort of the more intellectual group that was working on the on this uh, censor board certainly um, treated, you know, Ken Russell as an artist. And, you know, Ken was someone who uh, was the first person to show full male nudity in a film. Um, his star, uh, Oliver Reed, was, well, the same person, the first person to be totally frontally nude in a British film, was the first person to use the F word in a in a, a film in Britain. And so, you know, these were times when things were changing. And I don't think that the censor board wanted to look like they were particularly behind the times. I think that they did want to support Ken Russell's vision. He was a, an extremely important filmmaker at the time in, in Europe. Um, he had been voted as one of Britain's most influential artists, right along with the Beatles and David Bailey and people like that. So, you know, he was an extremely well-known character at the time. And so I think they did try and work with him to get a version of the film that everybody could live with. What you know, they didn't anticipate was the studio and then all the individual censor boards that would just take the scissors out and start hacking away at this thing once it had been approved and released. Now, is it true that the film suffered more in the United States than it did even in Europe? Mostly. I mean, it was banned in Italy, and it was banned in certain towns in England and that sort of thing. But yeah, I would say that the, the most sort of indignities uh, in terms of local censor boards and that sort of thing um, happened in the United States. And, you know, you have to just remember the time, 1971, uh, there, there wasn't a whole lot of nudity on screen. There was, but, you know, typically not in the huge, big-budget movies like this one was. Um, with big stars in them. Um, this was a movie that was uh, kind of bleak in its outlook. Uh, just a couple of years later, The Exorcist comes out, which has bad language, not as much nudity, but uh, lots of the same kind of themes. And yet, you know, this movie has been hailed as a classic. It becomes, you know, the past without a single cut. All that sort of gets an R rating instead of an X rating, all that stuff that comes out. And and I asked a number of people why they thought that, you know, the devil suffered so badly, whereas the exorcist uh, didn't, and in particularly in the United States. And what I was told was kind of, I, I thought, really sort of interesting is that the exorcist ends with an upbeat kind of note that good can conquer evil. It's going to be hard. It's going to take a little while, but in the end, you know, good wins out. Uh, religion will, will, you know, the, the belief in religion will, will eventually vanquish the devil. Whereas in The Devils, 
there's really there's no winners at the end of this movie. I mean, nobody wins, and you know the people who aren't dead, burned at the stake, have been you know. Uh, Get you know, or either abandoned, left alone, or or just simply uh, you know humiliated and ridiculed, and you know this is not uh, the uplifting kind of thing that American audiences, uh, particularly I think in those days, and I think I mean North American audiences tend to like things with a bit of uplift to them, particularly when you're living in difficult times, which in 1971 Vietnam is raging on, you know there's a gas crisis, all sorts of things are happening, and this movie was just seen as something that was a little bit too bleak, and I think as a result of that, and it pushed the envelope just a little bit too far, that local uh, film boards just went to town on it and just cut it to shreds. Whereas The Exorcist, just two years later, when, you know, if anything, the times were a little bit more dire, uh, came out and people said, well, I like this. This is good. Because it had kind of a, a an uplift to it. Do you think that that's why, I mean, really, between The Devils and The Exorcist, and especially The Exorcist, I think that these films really kind of opened up a whole window of... Um, uh, copycat films, uh, almost exploitation films. I mean, to have you know, devil above angel or angel above, devil below, like a porn film that deals with exorcism and possession. Do you think that that's the the times and these films helped lead the way into this um, you know uh, um, kind of copycat um, oh, yes. possession films? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I mean, I I think they probably. I mean, they've been making movies about Jesus forever. And, you know, and Jesus and the devil and, and sort of the conflict, those go back to the silent movie days. Um, the movies about the devil were a little bit more rare, um, unless they had a really strong moral uh, ending. Evil had to lose at the end of those. Um, and then along came Rosemary's Baby. And at the, around the same time that Rosemary's Baby came out, um, which was a couple of years before The Devils, um, uh, you know, Time Magazine runs a, a, a full-page uh, cover story uh, called Is God Dead? And I think that all of a sudden, you know, people were talking about uh, good and evil and religion in a way, in a very public form, that they hadn't before. And movies, um, you know, if nothing else, typically, often, uh, reflect what's going on in the world. They sort of manage to somehow catch the zeitgeist of what's happening in the world. And I think movies like Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist tended to grab those things for different reasons, but tended to grab the zeitgeist from the time. The Devils fell out of step with that a little bit, but still, I think, um, it can certainly be included in that sort of lineage of, you know, movies about good and evil, movies about the devil and possession and that sort of thing that gave us, I mean, every year there are two or three more possession movies that come out, devil possession movies that come out, and every year I am, you know, surprised at how well they do. Um, you know, there are uh, there's a huge audience out there for movies uh, about devil possession, and I'm not exactly sure what it is. I think, you know, again, typically, uh, you know, in these movies, uh, good wins out, which is something that, you know, I, I suppose people want. But I also think that there, there has to be uh, something to do with um, the U.S. being um, a religious nation, and this idea of good versus evil is something that just uh, people find very appealing. Now, you interviewed dozens of people for this book, either related to the film or not. Um, other than the people that had unfortunately passed away, who were some of the people that you wanted to talk to but weren't able to? Vanessa Redgrave was the only person 
that was on the list that I didn't get. And um, I spoke with her uh, people. I, uh, you know, I, I, I talked to um, her manager. I talked to everybody and tried to convince them to do it. And I kept getting the same answer. She is someone who looks forward. She doesn't look back, you know, all that kind of thing. And I, uh, that was a huge disappointment for me because of the, of the main cast, uh, you know, I mean, of the, above the title stars, it was Oliver Reed and Vanessa Redgrave. Oliver Reed obviously died uh, 10 years ago, so I wasn't able to get him. And uh, she just wasn't making herself available to me. So that was a huge disappointment. Glenda Jackson, who had originally been offered uh, Vanessa Redgrave's role in the film, uh, didn't turn me down, but we did it via email. And, I mean, she gave me what is possibly the greatest line in the book, where I said, you know, you were offered this role. Why did you turn it down? And she said, because I didn't want to play another sexual neurotic in a Ken Russell film which is a pretty great line, and uh, I forgave her for only uh, uh, doing the interview via email after that. But really, for me, uh, the holy grail of this would have been getting Vanessa Redgrave, and unfortunately, it just uh, I tried for two years, and it just didn't happen. How has the book been received since its release? Well, you know, I thought that we'd sell 500 or 1,000 copies of this, and it would you know, become something that... Uh, movie geeks like me would, you know, get together and talk about, it, and that would be it. And uh, instead, it sold extremely well. Um, we've sold an awful lot of copies. We're in our third, going into fourth printing now, which is uh, which makes me happy. Um, and the reviews have all been good. I mean, I I, I have to say it. You know, um, this book. Uh, about this 40-year-old weird movie that, you know, nobody's seen, ended up getting reviewed in Entertainment Weekly. Uh, the Hollywood Reporter did something on it. Uh, the reviews were all very kind. People seem to be really taken just with the story of an artist, Ken Russell, uh, struggling so with this movie and then just having it taken away from him. And um, I, that's something that I really think has struck a chord with people because, you know, I, ha I have to imagine that most of the people that reviewed the book hadn't seen the film because it's so difficult to see. So I, I, I guess it was just the really the basic primal kind of elements of the story that really appealed to them. Do you see any hope for The Devils coming out in a complete form anytime soon? Well, I, there is a complete form of it that screens in London uh, every now and again. Uh, the, you have to uh, um, prove that it's an educational screening. That is the caveat that they have uh, placed on screening this movie. Um, and But they do screen it. It does happen. And so, you know, it's out there in the world. I think that, you know, if, if uh, it could make money, it's Hollywood. Listen, if it could make money, they should release it. I, I can't for the life of me think of why they wouldn't release this thing. I had just wished that it would have happened while Ken Russell was alive. Um, it was really one of his, the, the, the great uh, disappointments of his career that this movie was treated so poorly and that uh, the full uh, you know, sort of grandeur of his vision was never seen by uh, a wider audience. And so it would have been nice of it to come out uh, while he was still alive. But, you know, my fingers are crossed. I, I know, I'm convinced that one day 
I'm just going to uh, wake up and I will go to, you know, my movie sites online, <clears throat> pardon me, and there it will be, you know, this uh, just out of the blue, someone will decide to release a beautiful version of this. For folks who aren't familiar with Ken Russell's work, where do you recommend as a good place to start? I would, uh, a lot of it's kind of hard to find. Um, you know, Ken is uh, someone who, whose work has not been well represented often on uh, uh, DVD, but I would have a look at um, a lot of the earlier documentaries that he made, some of which are, you know, absolutely uh, brilliant. Um, and they are, they were, you know, frequently made for uh, the BBC for a show called Omnibus on the, on the BBC. And they are documentaries about classical composers, but they are uh, iconoclastic. They are unusual and they developed a documentary language that is still being used today. He started doing uh, reenactments. He started uh, using different actors to play the same character at different times in their lives, which hadn't really been done before in a documentary style. And it has certainly, you know, uh, influenced filmmakers uh, for generations now. So have a look at that work. Tommy is very near and dear to my heart as a movie that is just so over the top and gaudy, uh, but with such a great score that I think it's worth having a look at. Absolutely. Um, Crimes of Passion, uh, you know, with uh, Kathleen Turner and Anthony Perkins uh, is one of the great sort of uh, mid-period films that he made. Uh, The Devils, of course. Um, You know, there's uh, Women in Love is probably Probably the film that most people have seen uh, with Oliver Reed and Alan Bates, and it's of course the you know has the first full frontal naked scene uh, for a, a man uh, in film history. So you know any of those uh, would be uh, you wouldn't go too far wrong. But with any of his work, I really do think that you know you're going to find even if you don't love it, you cannot deny that it's interesting that everything that he did sort of pushed boundaries and that he was someone who was as much an uh, an artist and I mean artist in the in the sort of the 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 idea of someone who was driven by concepts and ideas uh, as he was a filmmaker. I don't know if this is necessarily a fair question to you because you are a Canadian and I want to ask uh, your opinion as far as the difference between what we see as a he grew up Catholic, correct? I did not. No. No, no, he Oh, he did, did, no, he did not grow up Catholic. He uh, okay. he uh, switched. He okay. converted to to Catholicism. I was curious as far as your opinion of how um like a European or or uh, um a, a British person how influential religion is on them versus possibly in America. And the, the reason why I'm asking is a few weeks ago, we covered the Bad Lieutenant films. And obviously, Abel Ferrara wears his Catholicism kind of on his sleeve, whereas Werner Herzog does not necessarily do that, but it is more ingrained in him. How do you see Russell as far as displaying his religion? Uh, well, in, in terms of, of, I mean, there is nothing that he did on film uh, that doesn't have a deeply uh, Catholic uh, feel to it. 
Um, and, you know, even if you look at Tommy, uh, you know, there is a Catholic iconography all over that movie. Um, in all of his movies, um, there are crucifixes. In fact, one of his early uh, uh, bosses uh, at the BBC, uh, you know, Ken comes in and he pitches this idea for a film, and his boss said, all right, go make it, but just leave out all the crucifixes this time, because he had a, a habit of uh, including deeply uh, Catholic and, and religious iconography and images in all his movies. And so um, Russell was someone who uh, was really heavily influenced by his religion, by, the, uh, um, by the, the, the look and the feel of his religion, which he brought to um, the screen in virtually every movie that he made. Had he been an American filmmaker? I'm not sure. I mean, I think... Uh, you know, I'm not American. I've spent a lot of time there, but um, I, I, I think that Americans process religion a little differently than, than Europeans do. And I mean, I think possibly, you know, it's because, uh, um, you know, Europe has such a, a long, a much longer history. Um, and they are their cities are are filled with you know old school religious iconography that you grow up with it you grow up surrounded by this and and it can't help but sort of you know influence the way that you are whereas in America it's it, it's it's a little different I think and it seems to be um, a deeply held more fundamental kind of thing so I, I don't know I, I I can't really answer the question other than to tell you that I you know in Ken Russell's case uh, his films are jam-packed with, uh, with Catholic imagery. The Devils is probably his most overtly Catholic film, uh, which people at the time said, you know, this movie is heresy. I see it as a very um, uh, spiritual film that isn't about heresy. It's about someone who is looking at and questioning his religion, but from the point of view of someone who is um, deeply entrenched in it. I want to shift gears just uh, for a moment as we kind of wrap this up, and I want to know how you moved from writing movie books to doing the Elvis Costello book. Well, uh, that was after The Devils, uh, frankly, and spending two and a half years uh, working on that. And I still, I mean, I still write about movies every day. I mean, I'm still a, a film critic here, and I, I, I write reviews. I write five or six reviews a week and, you know, interview actors and that sort of thing. But in terms of the books, um, you know, again, I was uh, with my editors at the publisher, and we were just talking about things, and um, I told them the story about the first time that I heard My Aim is True by Elvis Costello. And the, the, the boiled-down version of the story is that I lived in this very small place. It was tough for me to get records, and I was a music fanatic as well as a movie geek. Uh, but uh, I was uh, reading about uh, all this insane music happening in New York and London, but I just didn't have access to it. My brother lived uh, in Toronto, and he could get things. So I would write him a letter and say, you know, I need these 20 albums and he would buy them for me and send them down. And my name is true was one of them. And when it came, I loved the cover. I already knew everything there was to know about Elvis Costello because I had read everything about him. I just hadn't heard the music. So I threw the record on, put the needle down and about halfway into the first side of the record, I thought, you know what? I never have to listen to REO Speedwagon or Chicago ever again. Here's music that really speaks to me. And uh, that, that record continues to speak to me, you know, 30 some odd years later, 35 years later. And 
uh, I told them that story, and they're like, well, maybe you should write about that. And that's literally as easy as it was. And it was a nice little break. It was a, a, a different book to write than the Devil's Book. There's not as many interviews. Um, more of it is just sort of a, uh, a story about the time and why this record came to be. It's really the story of 1976 and 1977 in London. And um, I'm a bit of an Anglophile, so uh, writing that was a, was a pleasure. Thank you to Richard Krause for coming on the show. You can find out more about his work and his book, Raising Hell, Ken Russell and the Unmaking of the Devils, over at our website, projection-booth.com. So we are back, and we are talking about the devils. And as you had kind of alluded to in the first part of the discussion, Rob, this is a really kind of a maligned film as far as there are chunks that are missing in a lot of different cuts, uh, including the now featuring the Rape of Christ scene. Yes, now featuring the Rape of Christ. That's right. See, that's, <laughs> that's how you sell it. Um, but <laughs> there was two scenes that were put back in, and Mark Kirkmode from the BBC, who also has a film podcast it will not be mentioned here, so don't go listen to it. Just keep listening to us. No, I'm just kidding. Um, he, <laughs> I think that's the only time we've ever said that about him. <laughs> wow, what, what dicks we are. Well, whatever. He's, he's British. He can handle it. But yeah. um, we... That guy's British, and who's going to listen to him anyway? Who gives a shit? <laughs> whatever. Whatever. Let's get together. So, Mark Kirkmode for about... God, it must have been... I remember reading stuff. He was writing this blog on the BBC about all the stuff that he was doing related to the devils and trying to get it released. And now he's finding bits of it and stuff like that. And there is uh, finally BFI, British Film Institute, uh, put out a DVD of the devils, which includes a commentary and a documentary with him. And he explains that, although he doesn't explain exactly how he found these pieces, which I would like to know, he did find the rape of Christ and he did find there was a small shot, maybe less than a minute that's at the end where the, one of the head inquisitors comes back after Grenier has been burned at the stake and gives sister Jean his leg bone. I'm purging my own devils. What devils? Ezekiel and Balaam, they say they can stand up to the church, but they can't stand up to this bitch. Jean, you're being hysterical. Where's Father Barry? I was expecting him. He's off to Poitiers. A nun is reported to be having commerce with your Isaacaron in the form of a three-legged dog. <laughs> but there is going to be a public exorcism tomorrow in St. Peter's. Father Mignon could manage? Father Mignon's been put away. He's quite demented. He keeps babbling that we've destroyed an innocent man. And with no signed confession to prove otherwise, everyone has the same opinion. Pity, then. No, with Grandier gone, you are no longer possessed. It's what simple. What should I do? Pray for salvation, do penance, stay here quietly, of course. What else? Look, there'll be a few tourists occasionally to brighten things up, but that won't last long. Soon the town will die, you'll be left in peace. And oblivion. Oh, I almost forgot. Souvenir. And it's implied that she masturbates with his leg bone. 
So the rape of Christ where the, the women go crazy, they tear down the giant crucifix and have sex with, with the statue, and then this uh, leg bone masturbation scene, both of those were cut from at least the American release. They may have been cut from, I believe they were also cut from the UK release when it came out in 71. And Warner Brothers has never really, I don't believe they've ever really done a video of this, except they put it out on VHS once. Yeah, definitely it was out on VHS, and I don't know if there's even a US DVD release. It was one of those where I was just like... I don't even want to fucking bother with this. You know, it was just like one of those, like I, I was just, it was such an oppressive weight when it came to like, Oh shit. Like when you announced that you wanted to do this one, it was like, now I got to find the most complete version. Who the hell knows what the most complete <laughs> version is. It's like Blade Runner. I, it's like Blade oh, Runner, but with uh, raping of a crucifix. <laughs> well, yeah. And we're going to be talking in a few weeks here about Manhunter. That's another one. It's just like, oh, God, you know, I got three copies of Blade Runner. Blade Runner. I got three copies of Manhunter on top of my TV right now. And it's just like, okay, <laughs> what am I going to watch first? Yeah. See, and, and then people wonder why these fucking shows are so long. It's like, right. because we got to watch like three different versions of the movie that's why it takes so long i'm sorry that these episodes are getting longer and longer but no i it i i think that from what i read there was a u.s vhs release there may have been a british home video release and then there was nothing and it's my understanding that warner brothers has possibly a complete print of this but we'll never let it out. And even as far as I know, and we've talked about them several times on here, the good job that they do with the Warner archives, releasing stuff that eh, kind of fringy stuff that's in the vaults that not a lot of people want, really want did haven't even bothered to put it out there. Although there was some movement, I think with the UK version where, okay, Kirk mode sat down, he got everything together, and then they told him, no, you can't do it. And then there was some sort of back and forth in terms of, okay, well, you can have it, but you can't have it this way or that way or whatever. And the version that I saw, I don't know if what you sent me was a fan edit or if it was a legitimate version from that DVD because obviously those segments, you can tell what was cut out in those segments right. and put back in. The quality definitely changes. I mean, it's not like one of these, like when you go to see Metropolis and it's like this film suddenly becomes super grainy because it's been stored in a vault in Brazil for, you know, a hundred years or whatever, but it, you definitely see the quality degrade. And I think that what I sent you might've been the BFI DVD version, but I will not swear to it. And then you also have this whole idea of, well, the, the stuff that you have in the UK runs at a higher frame rate than it does in the US. I think it's like 25 point something or other versus 29.97. So there's this whole like time difference. So some people will be like, oh, well, the 111 minute cut is the, the longest version, but in the US it runs 109 minutes because of the speed differential and all this kind of horse shit. And it's just like, for God's sakes, just you know, give me a, a video watchdog article or something that has all of this stuff researched so I can see which one I need to track down, what is the final version that I need to see. And then it's even more complicated because you know, you see these documentaries about the devils, and they're using scenes in there that aren't even in this quote unquote most complete cut, and you hear them saying, Oh well, you know, we had, we decided to actually leave this out. So it's like, okay, well, 
I guess what I'm seeing is the most complete cut because the other stuff was left out on purpose by the filmmaker, but it still exists. So they're going to throw it in the documentary anyway. It's just like, oh, for Christ's sake. And I do mean that as a pun in this episode. And then there was an issue that I read online that Warner Brothers said, okay, fine, we'll release it. And they put it, of all places, in the iTunes store. Yeah. And it was only up there for like a day, and then it was gone. I just tried to figure out why they're doing this. I mean, it's a 40, now 43-year-old film. Yes, it has some elements that people would be concerned about, but I don't find it any more disrespectful or crazy than Solo. And as a matter of fact, I found Solo more harrowing to watch than The Devils. And if there's any place that should have the right to put this thing out, Warner Brothers, just get out of your own way and hand it over to the Criterion folks and let them do it. Yeah, let them take the heat. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. As I was watching this, I was thinking about Silo, and I was just like, am I super jaded or what? Because I, I found the Devils to be fascinating, and I found it to be very emotional, but it was all the emotional stuff that was coming out of the way that they were setting up Grandier. It wasn't the whole stuff of like, oh my God, these nuns are naked and they're masturbating or they're doing this or that or the other thing. That really didn't just affect me very much whatsoever. And I don't know if it's just because I'm a heartless bastard or I'm not religious or what it is, but it just all seemed to add to the story so it didn't seem like it was this gratuitous kind of stuff that was going on in there it didn't feel like you know it was like shock for shock's sake it all just felt like it added to the the pieces of the whole rather than it being like oh my god this one particular part was just so you know oh why did they put that in there that just really melted my brain no it just all flowed together very nicely and it just felt like the, the story and the editing and the version that we saw, it all felt like it belonged. Um, I didn't know if I necessarily got – like I understood what was going to ha- happen with that femur from Grandier when it was given to um, Sister Jean just because the, the top part of that bone – is very phallic. It does look like a dick and balls. So I've kind of figured out what was going to happen, but I don't know if I necessarily saw anything or was really kind of shown like that's what she's going to do. It's all implied. I mean, much like I talked about the torture scene with the legs, you don't see it. It's much more of an implication than anything else. The other thing with the film from the issue of who would be offended by the movie, I find this interesting was in Kirk Mode's documentary, he interviews this Jesuit priest. And this Jesuit priest was part of the League of Decency, he, which is the Catholic censor office. And he also taught at, I think it was Loyola in Chicago and all of this. And he says that the rape of Christ scene to him makes complete sense, just showing the difference between Grenier having this communion and ceremony out in the wilderness and them going mad and also showing, as he said uh, in that interview piece, there's the hypocrisy of of the church at that time and, and the power that it was doing to pervert uh, these nuns and to put them into this place where they would do these kind of things. So even when you have a Jesuit priest who teaches, I guess, the devils in this class is what they were saying in, in the documentary. It really is fascinating to hear someone go, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be offended by that. It's kind of like we were talking about, you brought up Last Temptation of Christ, in that one of the things that I read was Last Temptation of Christ was often used in seminary as a debate 
tool against the Gospels, saying, read the Gospels, and then we're going to read this, and then we're going to discuss the Kazantzakis book against the Gospels. So it's interesting to hear people who are of the faith say, no, I'm not offended by that. It actually makes sense. Well, it sounds like what you're talking about, Rob, is is like reasonable study and debate versus like knee jerk kind of reactions to, you know, um, uh, something that would be presented as shocking. Like, you know, if you walk up to man on the street and you go, "Hey, would you be offended about this movie where there's this nun masturbating with the bone of this guy that was burned at the stake?" I think the guy would probably be like, yeah, fuck yeah, I would be. That That's that's horrible. That's shocking. But then if it's like, you know, you, you sit down with people that are actually kind of like, okay, let's take a look at this and let's, you know, read about this and, and study it and all this kind of stuff, you're going to get a whole different reaction, which is just like kind of sad because you can really boil it down to like a couple of things, which would be those like blurbs on CNN. You know, Warner Brother releases a movie with none sex in it, you know, and it's like, or none men masturbation scene it's just like wow okay yeah um people are going to get offended by that blur but if you actually give them the full story if people want to take the time and read you know past the first paragraph then maybe they'll kind of understand but that's not kind of the culture that we live in right now well i think that that's the thing that i also talked about recently with a friend of mine about violence in film and i said i don't really have a problem with violence in film it has to do with intent and context and much the same way with this. It is about intent and it is about context. And if you take the scenes away from everything that surrounds it, as you said, yeah, it's going to be shocking. But if you take it within the context of the film and the intent of the filmmaker, then it makes much more sense and you can understand what he was trying to get at by doing so. So you're much less offended by it in the whole, in the totality, than you will be in just here, here's a clip on YouTube. I would almost be curious. I haven't watched the the cut version of this, and there are times where I've watched cut versions of things that actually seem to be worse than the uncensored versions just because they are removing the context for different things. Like um, this guy, Dan Clark, years ago made a movie called The Item, and it's this splat stick kind of gangster film just uh you know the violence is absolutely pushed to the point of absurdity and cartoonishness and when it came out on video originally the studio balked at that and they cut cut it to ribbons they they cut out all this stuff but they cut out that level where it becomes funny you know that that moment when it becomes absurd yeah that's the scene that i always remember when i got the criterion edition of robocop where the shooting of mr kinney in the boardroom by ed 209 in the theatrical release is horrific yeah when you see him get shot over and over and over again for another like 30 seconds it becomes ridiculous and absurd and you see just how much it's about overkill and just being ridiculous. So it actually isn't horrific anymore. It's more comedic and ridiculous. So that's the same thing that you're talking about is by removing elements, you can actually make the film <laughs> the opposite of what you were looking at just by, you know, just a few trims. Yeah. If Ed 209, it's not reasonable, but that he kills that guy in the boardroom because the guy has thrown away the gun. But if Ed 209 used a reasonable amount of force, then it becomes more like you can picture that out in the wild when Ed 209 is patrolling the streets of Detroit and it's just like, oh man, he's going to use, you know, force on this. But when it becomes this excessive 
cartoonish excessive amount of of force then it just is like oh my god you know then the satire is able to kick in and yeah you just you don't get that when it comes to let's cut out some of these squibs because it's just way too much and it's like yeah you guys really don't know what you know mr verhoven was doing with that one i haven't seen a cut version of the devils the only version i've seen and as a matter of fact i think it's both the same that bootleg that i saw and then the version that you sent me which i believe is the bfi dvd that came out a year or two ago uh, are exactly the same in terms of it had both scenes in terms of the censorship cuts they're both there so as far as i know everything that's in there i've seen it twice in two different places and that's what it is the one thing that i really liked about the marketing on this which i have to give warner brothers credit for on the original trailer is that they tell people this might not be a movie for you the devils is not a film for everyone that's great Thank you for letting us be adults and make a choice. And I thought that was was a brilliant idea to deal with the fact that this was in 1971, as we're now talking in 2014, still a very uh, hot potato film for some people. And the fact that the distributor was willing to go, you know what? If you don't want to see that one, that's okay. Today, that would never fly. You would never see a trailer. You would never go to a theater and see a trailer that goes, you know what? This movie, you might not want to see it. It might not be for you. But it might be for the guy next to you. No. The the trailers today, the way films are marketed today is it's for everyone. And everyone should be able to go see this. And that is not the case when we talk about art. Art, <laughs> whether it's film or music or books or whatever, a lot of times it's not for everyone. And as a matter of fact, the stuff that is not for everyone is sometimes the most fascinating stuff you can watch. I went to a double feature once. Well, I went in one theater and I saw a film. And then I went to another theater and I saw a film. And before each film was a preview for Deja Vu that I think it was Tony Scott movie with Denzel Washington. And in one theater, I saw a preview for an action film. And in the other theater, I saw a preview for a science fiction film. And, you know, it was like one of these things where um, we're going to be talking to Keith Gordon in a few weeks about Mother Night, and he was in a movie called I Love Trouble. And when that movie came out, that was the first time I ever saw at the movie theater where we were working it it had like i think four different previews and it said this preview is shown before these movies this preview is shown before these movies and it was each one was a different cut to give it a different flavor so it's like it's this whole one size fits all kind of marketing you know it's like we're going to make you think that the movie that we're selling you is going to appeal to you if you love comedies if you love dramas if you love you know dog stories we'll take a picture of that dog that we had in Act 3 and play that up. Maybe give it a funny voiceover. It's just like, oh my god, it's just shameless. So yeah, you're right. Like, early 1970s wouldn't have happened. Early 1970s, a lot smarter kind of marketing and a lot smarter version of film that's coming out back then. When I first saw that trailer the first time, my jaw hit the floor. Because I couldn't believe that a distributor would say, yeah, I don't see this movie. It's probably not for you. (laughs) <laughs> I just can't believe that. And but at the same time I go, that's how you sell this movie. That yeah. I mean that it, you could do the same trailer for Solo. You could do the same trailer for Battle Royale. You could do the same trailer for a Serbian film, whatever. Whatever movie that people consider edgy and 
you know, troublesome in some way. Just just to have a distributor just acknowledge the fact that this is not for ages six to sixty six. No, exactly. Bring the whole family to the devils. You'll all have a devil of a time. That's how it would be. I mean, if someone, I, I would love to see someone go in and cut a trailer for this that would be like a family friendly trailer. That would just be the hell most hilarious thing I've ever seen. Well, they can do a love story version of it and play some sappy music over it and everything. Yeah, maybe. And they could probably even do a wacky comedy version of it <laughs> which i would love to see add some sound effects and everything you know and probably focus in on those two idiots that i was talking about before and it would just be like their story yeah. the, the like rosencrantz, rosencrantz and gilderstern <laughs> <laughs> exactly yep uh i tell you jinx you owe me a coke well i'm hoping that eventually warner brothers will see the value and put this thing out in the best possible way it can. And like I said, if they're not willing to do it, if they don't want to put their heads out there, just call up Criterion and give them the elements already. I mean, this it it's absurd, the amount of stuff. If you go online, and I'm not going to read it to you. You can go online and you can find these articles. Be in Mark Kirk mode. Be at the stuff that's written on Wikipedia, whatever. And just look at how this thing had been batted back and forth for years. Oh, we're going to release it. No, we're not. Yeah, we're going to release No, we're not. Oh, we're going to release it. And then we pull it. It just... I, I don't understand. I really don't get it. It's, you know, the, like I said, the movie is over 40 years old now. I know that there are certain elements of the country that are conservative and things like that, but I don't think it's any more conservative than it was in 1971. So I don't, I, I don't understand what their thinking is, unless it's just pure economics, which a lot of times when we talk about censorship in America or inability to get your hands on things in America has absolutely nothing to do with the content. It has everything to do with the fact that they don't think they're going to make any money on it. So why bother? Right. And that's where something like Warner Archives comes in. Because they know they're not going to make buku bucks off of this thing. They're going to be lucky to sell X number of copies. And in this world, hey, maybe it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to take the time to do this and impress these so that's when video on demand happens and I, I it's a good economic model but still it's very much a disservice to the film especially to release a film as important and as robust as this with so many supplemental materials that are available to it giving us the whole making of the film and the aftermath and all that if you're going to release it as just a movie only, it's that whole thing that we were talking about when we talked about Invasion of the Body Snatchers and that Olive Films disc of it. It's like, you got to be effing kidding me. This thing came out as a criterion at one point with all of this other stuff on there, and now you've stripped off everything and it's just the movie? It's a disservice. It's an it's a insult to the film itself. Yeah, and especially with something like The Devils where you have all of this historical stuff. And I'm yeah. not even just talking about the historical stuff surrounding the film. I'm talking about you could get someone who's a Huxley scholar and they could talk about this whole thing. You can get someone who knows about medieval church history and the Inquisition. They can talk about all this stuff. So you could do so much interesting material related to this and, and talk about sort of what was going on in terms of, you know, feudal France coming into its own and how Louis XIII and Richelieu and all of them are trying to consolidate their power. And you could do all of that. I mean, there's so many things that you could do with this and it, to me, it just seems like sheer laziness and fear is what it seems like. I won't disagree with you. And, you know, say whatever you will about Mark Kermode, but God love him for, for doing what he's been doing for this film. We all have the movies that we beat our drums over. You know, I've got a few of them myself, and I'm glad that there's somebody out there, you know, leading the charge for this. So keep going to it. You know, stay strong, brother. 
Yeah, and the real sadness is is that this thing was supposed to be released in the best possible way and everything when Ken Russell was still with us, and sadly he didn't get to see it. Yep. So, you know, once again, uh, artists not getting the respect they deserve. All right, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. You're about to find out that everything your mother told you about rock and roll is true. When the sleepy town of Mill Basin is invaded by a sleazy band of hard rockers, the self-righteous townspeople try to stop their concert series. And now we find that disciples of the devil are invading our town and threatening to steal our children away from us. When the band finally overcomes parental objections, a town full of normal Midwestern kids begins to turn bad. Bloodshed, riots, and horrible mass murders assail defenseless Mill Basin. I love you, Dad. turn into monsters right before your very eyes, the special effects are fantastic. That's right, we're back next week and we're talking about the heavy metal movie, Black Roses. So, we'll be moving from the devils to the devil's music, if you know what I mean. So, uh, practice your sign of the horns a la Ronnie James Dio and get ready to join us. But before we go, we want to thank this week's special guest, Richard Krauss, for coming along and talking about his book. You can find out more about that at projection-booth.com. And also, this week's special guest co-host, filmmaker Vincenzo Natale. Now, Vincenzo, the last time you were with us, we were talking about Blue Velvet and your film Haunter, and that was just starting to make the rounds. So what is the latest with you, sir? You know, actually, I had a very busy year. I did a little uh, horror anthology series that I produced in Canada called uh, Darknet, and uh, will hopefully find its way here to the States before long. Uh, and I, it was kind of my year of TV, and I did several episodes of Hannibal, which is a very pleasurable experience. And, uh, and you know, uh, I keep chasing rainbows <laughs> at the same time. I have a few, few films of mine I'd still like to get made. Now, are you still working on uh, Theorem and Neuromancer? Yeah. <laughs> are those your rainbows? Uh, there are a few of them. I have quite a few rainbows, actually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a number of things. Something will happen eventually, I hope. <laughs> and then, um, did you mention ABCs of Death? That's right. I shot my segment of ABCs of Death too. <laughs> what letter are you? I am the letter U. Oh. Hmm. U stands for ukulele? <laughs> oh, you got it. <laughs> it won, why didn't I think of ukulele? Think of all the things you could do with the ukulele. It would have been a lot cheaper than what I did. I'll tell you that. We're going to be doing Manhunter in a couple weeks here. And with you being uh, director of, of Hannibal, obviously you, you probably enjoy the show. What do you think about the way that they've kind of recast and are using some of the elements from the Thomas Harris stuff and kind of reinterpreting it in this, this new light. 
I think it's really brilliant, actually. I think it's amazing how... And by the way, I, now I should say I'm not familiar with the Thomas Harris books. I've never read them. I just only know what I've been told and, and what I've seen in the uh, existing movies. But, but clearly, Brian Fuller has been taking elements from the books and then reconfiguring them slightly to fit into his own conception of Hannibal and the story of, of Hannibal. And it's, it's really quite amazing how he's strung all these pieces together. Um, so, uh, no, I, I mean, I always think the best adaptations are not faithful in, in the details. They're faithful in the spirit. And I, I know that Brian takes great care with Thomas Harris's work, and I suspect, although having not read the books, I could not say for certain. This is probably, in some ways, a more faithful adaptation than some of the other films that have been made. So is there anything you want to plug before we kind of let you go? For you know those within 45 minutes to spare, you could go online and log on to darknetfiles.com, and there you will find a perverted website that, um, in addition to having my pilot episode for the show, also has a lot of other interesting tidbits. And um, that's a good place to start. All right. Well, we'll be sure to link to that over at our website, projection-booth.com. So thanks again, Vincenzo, for coming on the show. And thanks to everyone for listening. If you want to thank us, go over to iTunes and leave us a review, some stars. And remember, devils are everywhere.
greatest sinner ever to walk on God's earth. But Satan's boy, I could never be. I haven't the humility. I know what I have sown, and I am prepared for what I shall reap. But do you, Reverend Mother, know what you must give to have your wish about me fulfilled? I will tell you. Your immortal soul to eternal damnation. 